This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Uh, today, get ready, folks. A- another GOP debate tonight. Knockdown dragout. Do you know what channel it's on? Nope. Yeah, me either. There's four. There's I'm only a- four left, and then there were four. Only four what? There's really only four candidates left. Who are you Who are you just dismissing outright? Well, we're talking Trump, okay. Cruz, uh-huh. Rubio, yeah. Kasich. And? There's oh, one more. Carson. He's still there. No one knows it, but he's there. Carson's still there. He's still there. But tonight, they say it's going to get ugly because somebody's got to do something. It's, are, you, it, are you saying tonight there will be blood? Tonight? Someone a, will fall? I don't no? know if anyone You're will not going fall. That, far? that would make for great TV. But what I have, a, I have an image in my mind of a really big giant with two little guys nibbling at his ankles and one sitting on a bench in the park watching the whole thing. Actually, two sitting on the bench, playing checkers. Tonight's debate. Get ready. But you know what? That is today's topic. Today we are going to be talking to Matt Lewis, who's the author of a, a book um, with, a, with, I think, one of the most interesting titles of a book I think we've ever had on the show, How the GOP, um, it's basically too dumb to fail. This guy's an insider in the GOP. He's a pundit. He's a he's a, a vocal member of the GOP that is going to explain to us how the GOP is why they're coming off so like hectic and crazy, why they don't seem to make much sense anymore. Basically, he's going to be talking about his book Too Dumb to Fail, how the GOP betrayed the Reagan revolution to win elections. And it might explain why we have so many weird things. I mean, like, it's completely upside down. Um, Mitt Romney came out against Donald Trump about his taxes. Which Trump promptly responded about his taxes. Yeah. But the interesting, they both have issues that why on earth would Mitt Romney, who had a knockdown drag out about his taxes, bring up taxes? Well, he said... Because he feels that everyone should be vetted as he was. And somebody has to take out Trump. Somebody. Mitt? At this point, the math, it's starting to look like Trump's the guy. I I mean, that's why they need they need they need Trump to take out Trump, basically. But the only way he could do that is if there's something hiding in his closet. So start opening the closets. Do you think there's anything in there that would make anyone? I mean, look at all all that he said, all no. that he's done. I, I think I th- I, I, I don't would, think taxes is going to take him down. No, I could imagine. Oh, I think there will be something, but it won't take him down because he'll just talk around it. He's already talked around everything. Yeah, he'll just. But there there could be something. Like they keep trying. I keep seeing the bankruptcy thing coming right. up, and it's like he goes, "That's part of business." Right. These other companies I had, they failed. I let them go. It's you just you go with what's working. Well, and again, and it's working. This is the perfect time for this stuff to work. When Mitt Romney was running, remember everyone was mad that he laid people off to save companies. 
And it, it really it impacted him a lot. But with Trump, he's filed bankruptcies as a business, but it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter today. This is the weirdest. That's why we're upside down. He's a businessman. Well, so was Mitt Romney. Well, not, and Mitt Romney not the was same like, way. Did, well, he was. Mitt ran the hedge fund, and people were able to spin that into a negative situation. Well, Mitt, Mitt where, well he also ran a company that saved a lot of companies. Well, he ran a company that tore and, a lot of companies apart, too. Well, and made a lot of money and kept a, some people employed. As so, some would say, in spite of people losing their jobs. Well, and when we get into <laughs> Donald Trump's world... There's a CD dark side to real estate companies hotels, that are trying to teach people how to be real estate. He has golf courses. He's fine. Yeah. He's so a winner, Matt. One He's the, a winner. This is what we're going to get into. It's crazy what's happening to the GOP. And so we're going to have a GOP insider come try to explain to us all what on earth is happening and why is it so upside down. And this really probably isn't just something you're seeing just in the GOP. Even the Democrats are struggling seriously and maybe shouldn't be because they had a president from their party for seven plus years. Huh. What's going on with this world? And then their Crazy. pick isn't winning. Bernie oh. Sanders comes in, someone who they the burn. They were like, okay, this is going to be cute and it's not going to work. And all of a sudden he has found traction. Yeah. The burn. I mean, I just, I think there's, a, this tells us that a lot of people in the country aren't being listened to. They don't feel like they're being heard. And their issues are compounding. It's it's it, somebody needs to listen to it. Apparently, it's Donald and the burn. <laughs> Donald and the burn. So we'll we'll get into that uh, with Matt Lewis and uh, get his take. Um, what else? You know, what else is going on other than a debate tonight? Seems to be all we're, we ever hear about anymore. But uh, let's do this. Let's get to Terry, find out what's going on around the rest of the world. Terry? There's other news going on. As we uh, mentioned before, the uh, debate tonight, the Republican debate, CNN and Telemundo. So, Matt, you can watch on Telemundo. Excellent. Uh, 8.30 Eastern, live from Houston. Woo, Houston. So, okay, different locales. Virginia State Police say four people, including a two-year-old boy, were killed after violent storms and tornadoes tore through the state. And all the way up the East Coast on Wednesday, several people were trapped inside storm wreckage after a tornado hit the area and left more than 20 people injured. Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe declared a state of emergency and said he planned to visit damaged areas. The severe conditions were part of the same storm system that created about 30 tornadoes in the south on Tuesday. There was there was a video from the White House, severe storm hitting you know in that oh, right. The yeah. camera looking right at the White House is rainstorms. New York, there was a uh, Coast Guard vessel that overturned. And uh, the crew rescue was uh, rescuing victims. They made it to safely ashore without injuries. So it's not sure how many people, uh, how far they had to swim in that case. But oh. All kinds of different situations, tornadoes, crazy weather up and down the East Coast. The White House reportedly uh, vetting Brian Sandoval, the Republican governor of Nevada, for the vacant Supreme Court seat. Sandoval allegedly met with the Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid on Monday. And has reached a decision about potentially accepting a nomination. The two-term governor reportedly said it would be a privilege to be nominated. Added the Supreme Court in, in, uh, is the essence of justice in this country. Prior to being Governor Sandoval served as a federal judge in Nevada. Given his deep background in Republican politics, Sandoval's selection to secede the late Antonin Scalia could complicate GOP plans uh, to avoid voting and uh, on Obama's nominee before the election. Interesting wow. there. Hold on. Yeah. Go no, go ahead. President Obama with a uh, quote here. Uh, I'm going to do my job. Uh, we are going to go through a process. 
as we have done in two previous Supreme Court vacancies, to identify an outstanding candidate that uh, has impeccable legal credentials and would bring the kind of ability and compassion and objectivity and legal reasoning to the court that you know, the highest court in the land demands. So a possible moderate <laughs> nominee. Well, and yeah, so what do you do when you say we will not, we're not going to go through the, the, the nomination process with anybody if that person's a GOP Republican Hispanic governor? <laughs> and well, part moderate. of it, Harry Reid mentioned this yesterday. He brought up that this was something that had been discussed on, on some level somewhere. And it just started going like, oh, now it's a, a Republican governor. Are you going to say but no to this? Can you really trust it if Harry Reid's in it? I don't know. I mean, something's going on there. Well, part of it, it's like, did Harry Reid, if he would have just stayed out of it yesterday, yeah, it might have had more traction because now Republicans can point to, oh, it's Harry Reid. Yeah. He's just trying to undermine the system. You're going to trust Harry Reid? But again, and does, does this Governor Sandoval, does, does he stand the test? I mean, that's a big test. I don't know. Interesting. A little curveball from the president. Republican National Committee Chairman Rince Priebus has begun starting a uh, begun starting a private meetings that the party has sway. He's been say, stating in private meetings that the party has sway over its at, over it at all times unwelcome front runner because it has tools Trump will need to use to win the general election. Voter data and field digital and media operations that a nominee typically inherits from the party infrastructure. Dangling access to these resources, Priebus thinks he can help steer Trump towards party-wide policy goals and away from the inflammatory rhetoric that Republican officials see as divisive and dangerous, especially outside the primary, according to two Republican sources who have spoken with the chairman. So the the chairman of the party thinks he can get in there and kind of direct Trump. Yeah, we can sway this. What do you think? Oh, sure. But you know what I think? Trump has nothing to lose here. So let's say he goes all the way and wins. He probably doesn't really want to be the president. I mean, imagine that day, every day, making decisions on things honestly you don't care about. Right. And day in, day out. So, okay, he wins the presidency, but he doesn't probably love the job maybe. Or he keeps his job with more power, more media potential, more ability to make more money and be more focused on himself, he wins either way. And if he goes head to head with Clinton, he has fun. Yes. For about six months, just beating her up. And then if she wins, all right. Oh, well. Oh, well. Moving we on. I don't know. Did you see the 30 minute interview on ABC with Apple CEO Tim Cook? No. I went to look at it, saw it was 30 minutes, and went, whoa, I don't have 30 minutes to listen to two people yap about one problem that I've read multiple articles about. I kind of have a good feel of it. But Apple's stock is dropping. Their stock is dropping. Apple is reportedly creating a new version of the iPhone with strict security features to make it even tougher to hack into. The New York Times reports on Wednesday, citing unidentified sources, of course. The Times said Apple engineers are working on a security system that would make it impossible for government officials to break into a locked iPhone. The new security push is the latest twist in the Apple data encryption fight with the Justice Department. Uh, the Apple CEO, Tim Cook, told ABC News he would take the fight to the Supreme Court if necessary. The company has until Friday to respond to the court order. Huh. And it's something even beyond what the phones have now that they say they're working on. So that even what the FBI has proposed would not even work. So they're 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 trying to push it even further 
yeah. with the security features to the point where if you forget your passcode, right. you might not be able to open your phone ever. Well, they said it's like a cancer. This is like That's cancer. It's like cancer. Is it? It's really kind of ramping up the. We used to do it all the time. This yeah. just new security level. And in lighter news, a study published in the Journal of Appetite found that people who ate chocolate at least once a week perform better at mental skills than those who ate chocolate less often. Really? Par- participants were also given a series of tests designed to measure cognitive function. More frequent chocolate consumption has significantly associated with better performance on tests, including visual spatial memory and organizational, working memory, scanning and tracking, abstract reasoning, and the many mental state examination researchers said. They also suggest that regular chocolate consumption could help protect against normal age-related cognitive decline. Ah, see, it's a stimulant. Eat chocolate. Some people just have caffeine. But chocolate? Kinder, gentler way to get They said it. They said it's the flavonoids. Ah, that's one of my favorite words. Flavonoids. I don't even know what that is. It's a noid it's with a noid. flav in it. See, the noid was the thing in the what the eighties that killed Domino's Pizza. Well, do you remember Flava Flav? Flav the yeah, the, the guy rapper. With the big clock. Fl- yeah, yeah. Flava Flav. Was he a rapper? He. Well, yeah, I think he tried. Yeah, Flav. It's a noid. It's a flavonoid that you cut off a flav. Interesting, man. Good news, folks. Good news. Who'd have thunk it? A little chocolate in the morning helps you think better, pass your test. Instead of maybe giving your kids some fruit, a little orange before the test, just give them a Twix bar. No big deal. Hey, we'll take a break, folks. Come back, and uh, we're going to try to get uh, Matt Lewis on the phone. He is the author of um, this, uh, I think, a pretty interesting book. Uh, He's going to give us the conservative view of what's going on inside the GOP party the book's called Too Dumb to Fail, How the GOP Betrayed the Reagan Revolution to Win uh, Elections. And part of this premise is simply that there's a dumbing down of conservatism, and uh, it might not be serving the party. Um, and you also may be seeing it acted out in some of the uh, political rhetoric going on today. Stick with us, folks. Uh, we'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it seems like every day we hear a new story about the outlandish or ridiculous comments being made by some of our presidential uh, candidates, especially presidential frontrunner in the GOP side, Donald Trump. So how is it that a candidate whose campaign that seems to rely on on offensive, sometimes controversial moments is leading in the polls. Well, our guest today, Matt Lewis, author of the book Too Dumb to Fail, How the GOP Betrayed the Reagan Revolution to Win Elections and How It Can Reclaim Its Conservative Roots, says that America's inclination towards simplicity and stupidity is stronger than ever, and its greatest victim might just well be the Republican Party. Uh, so we're so glad to have you here, Matt. I know you're on a book tour out there uh, talking about this, your new book. Talk to us. Uh, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. I'm actually I'm in Houston today oh. uh, in preparation for this debate tonight. Yeah. On CNN. Now, do you think tonight in the debate, five or six candidates left, do you think we're going to be having um, more of, uh, you know, more too dumb to fail moments? <laughs> Well, I think there's some really interesting uh, things at play. And 
you know, too dumb to fail is about incentives. You know, um, we have a world now where if you say or do stupid things, you go up in the polls or you sell more books. Right. So really our politicians are responding to incentives. And I think we're going to see the same sort of problem tonight, slightly different. So everybody knows that, you know, basically you have to stop Donald Trump. He's this juggernaut. He keeps winning. Right. So it would seem rational to try to attack Donald Trump tonight. But in fact, what I think we're going to have happen is incentives. Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz both have short-term incentives to attack each other Mm -hmm. and to try to basically become the one alternative to Donald Trump. It's really stupid in the long run, but I think that's what they're going to do, and I think that's why it's a stupid move. But Donald Trump probably will continue to sail through. He'll stand again, and those two will come out bloodied. And I guess – but hasn't this been the way politically forever? Haven't they always worked on incentives, or was there some other – you know, some other method that they were they were leaning on. No, that's a good point. I, I'm not suggesting that politicians are any less corrupt or any <laughs> less noble right. or really any different than they ever were. The problem is that we are now incentivizing different things. So, for example, there used to be a time when if you said something vulgar, you would be punished, especially in a Republican primary. Right. Now you're rewarded. Um, there used to be a time when if you said something stupid or provocative, you would be punished. Um, now you are rewarded. So hmm. really, we get the politicians we deserve. And, right. and too dumb to fail, the villain isn't just the politicians, it's we the people. The people are becoming, we're just too, I guess we're too simple-minded to the point that a media star could become our leader. Yeah, you know, the book's called Too Dumb to Fail, and I do think part of the problem is the dumbing down of politics. But The problem with the title is that the problem isn't just the dumbing down. It's also we used to uh, have virtues like wisdom and prudence, um, and we're also getting away from those values as well. So Mm. it's it's, it's not just the dumbing down there, but it's also the the coarsening of our rhetoric and the cultural degradation that is feeding this whole story. It's like the numbing down too, right? It's the numbing of our values. We're we're no longer just leaning upon our values. We just go with what's stimulating. Take it. It's yours, I'm gonna, Matt. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that idea. That's a good, that's a good line. I <laughs> yeah. agree. I mean, and I, but you see it, and um, and it almost just becomes more of kind of a uh, like a like kind of um, what's the word? Um, where all of a sudden everybody's jumping on. Everybody's getting excited in in and even when you don't even know why you'd be excited for a Trump, it's almost like I'm more excited for Trump to keep succeeding simply to see more carnage and more blood right. and more, well, you know, uh, worldwide wrestling kind of mentality. Exactly. That, I mean, that's the, the reality show uh, mentality that we have. It's why people stop and look at a car wreck. I mean, in some ways it's human nature. Yeah. But um, we, we used to sort of resist human nature. We used to try to, you know, aspire to our better angels and now I think we're very carnal, and we're responding to really very – I mean, if you think about what Trump is doing, it's very tribal. It's very carnal. It, it goes back to, like, who's the bigger guy? Who's – I don't mean bigger morally. I mean physically, who's the biggest guy? We've talked about – this has been a big story, like Marco Rubio wearing boots to look taller. Right. Who's the toughest guy? <laughs> Donald Trump wants to be the toughest guy. These are – this is the way we used to – like, when we lived in tribes, we right. used to, like – uh, pick our leaders. And it, it, it's so uncivilized. 
race. And really, ironically, in the 21st century, this race is a very uncivilized and very sort of tribalistic campaign is um, in in your in your viewpoint. I mean, f- focusing on this, talking about this. I mean, you're on all the big uh, morning shows. You're you are in this in the you know in the arena fighting on this. Is this what's the future look like for the GOP? Well, I think we're at a, this is a time for choosing, and there are two very different potential futures. If if for example, you have a candidate like Donald Trump. I think it redefines what it means to be a Republican and what it means to be a conservative. And I think it becomes a party that's about anger and frustration. It becomes a white identity politics party Mm. uh, for populists and protectionists. On the other hand, (laughs) at the same time, it also could be if Marco Rubio, let's say, were to win the nomination, which is possible, not likely, but possible, then you could have a party – with Marco Rubio and Paul Ryan and Nikki Haley and Tim Scott that's very diverse, that's very conservative, that's about ideas like free markets, like defending the sanctity of life. And it's a very much a 21st century cosmopolitan conservatism that I think could win the future. So this is a very important election, um, not just the general election, but the primary could set the course uh, for the Republican Party for a generation. Oh, yeah. Holy cow. Wow. And it's and and meanwhile, we just sit here and it's in our hands. I mean, any member of the GOP can go out and and, and change this by voting, by thinking and getting your head involved. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and we've got not only do we have the chance to make a difference, but it's happening now. I mean, you know, with within a month, Donald Trump could basically be the nominee yeah. um, or not. Right. So this is like the timing of this book could not. Could not have been better yeah. uh, for me personally, but in terms of, you know, hopefully helping uh, save the movement. Oh, I love it. And I think I just think it's something that we need to be talking about. Well, Matt, I know you got to run. You've got a lot of other interviews to do today and uh, have fun just sitting there watching the Houston beatdown or whatever we're going to call it today. <laughs> and everybody, go check out the book, Too Dumb to Fail, How the GOP Betrayed the Reagan Revolution to Win Elections. Also, go uh, look up on um, as a podcast, Matt Lewis and the News. You can subscribe on iTunes and listen to his podcast as well. Great stuff, folks. We'll take a break. Come back. We're continuing our discussion about uh, the political front and the and the crazy tension going on in our country. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, you know, re, uh, a few months ago, we did an interview with Dr. Matt Grossman, and um, he uh, is a professor in East Lansing, Michigan, and he has done some incredible research about the asymmetry of politics. It's one of my favorite uh, interviews that gave me such insight on on Republican views, Democratic views, and why there's so much tension today. We're going to replay that uh, that interview for you to hopefully let you see before tonight what uh, what might be driving some of this ideology. Uh, the way this interview starts is I just asked Dr. Grossman a simple question about what really is the difference between the Republican and the Democratic Party as found in his research. 
Well, of course, we know there's uh, differences in uh, issue uh, attitudes uh, and uh, goals in government, but we're trying to show that uh, the Republican Party is much more uh, tied to an ideological movement of conservatism, uh, whereas the Democratic Party is more of a coalition of social groups uh, with different practical concerns uh, in government. And we see that uh, playing out in uh, public opinion, uh, but also in uh, government and in uh, party organi- organizing. Uh, oh. So we're looking at everything we can uh, to try to show uh, those those broad differences and their effects. And Because you sit there, you look at the debates with the GOP and the Democrats, and a lot of times I think we just chalk it up to the candidates, that the candidates, um, you know, some just are more charismatic, some are more ideologues, and Yet when it comes down to it, what you're seeing is there is a distinction between Republican and Democrat. Republicans are very ideologically based. They have they they have a they have a principle. They want to stick to the principle and purity to the principles. What matters? And then I'm I'm hearing in what I and seeing what I read, the Democratic Party more uh, they're kind of more movement. They want movement. They want change. They want uh, they're they're based more in coalitions. They have more. Um, I guess uh, people they're trying to serve more specific groups they're trying to serve, which makes them constantly pushing for new ideas. That's right. We've actually uh, coded all of the presidential debates, uh, both the uh, general election uh, debates between Republicans and Democrats and the primary, the first and last primary election debates uh, for all of them that we could find uh, to try to look for those differences. Uh, And there are, uh, of course, some differences across candidates, but the broad party differences do show up. That is, uh, the Republican candidates talk a lot more in terms of principles, uh, in terms of uh, broad American values and imagery, uh, whereas Democrats uh, mention more policy proposals. They mention more specific uh, social constituency groups that those proposals are, are targeted uh, to help. Uh, and uh, they uh, have more uh, a, a sense of the sort of practical uh, considerations involved in policymaking, uh, whereas Republicans always talk it, talk uh, back to the principles of conservatism. It's funny, even as you describe what you're seeing academically uh, in your research, th- even using the words, for example, Republicans prefer purity kind of, of principle. Uh, they're more ideologues. The, the, you're not even using those terms as a in a derogatory way. You're just saying they haven't they have an ideology and they want to live the ideology. Democrats prefer compromise, which we always think of as a positive word. But you're you're not using these terms. You're just using them to actually describe what they do. That's right. I mean, I think you do hear this uh, from both parties uh, in in more uh, more derogatory language. <laughs> right. so Republican Republicans would say uh, that you know we're the party of principles, and the Democrats uh, are the party of of gifts for particular constituencies. Right. Uh, and and the Democrats would say uh, you know these are uh, ex- uh, Republicans are, are extreme ideologues, and and we're the the practical policymakers. Right. So so both parties uh, understand this difference. Uh, they uh, obviously put it in their their own terms. But, but and it's funny. That's why we can't even have the conversation. And even as you guys were writing about it and Ezra Klein was writing about it, you it's almost like we have to look, I'm going to use the word ideologue. I'm not using it in a negative way. So just relax. But I think to understand these differences, it's powerful. So um, go back for a minute and talk to me about um, this idea that because we use the terms, for example, conservative uh, Republican, 
we use the term uh, liberal Democrat, but you can be a conservative Democrat and a liberal Republican. What, what have you found in your research just about those those labels? Well, certainly uh, Republicans use both labels a lot more, uh, both uh, members of the public uh, in the parties and uh, policymakers. Uh, both uh, on the Republican side use uh, liberal and conservative much more often. Uh, Democrats sometimes say, uh, well, maybe we're just changing the language to progressive, but even if you include those kinds of references, they're nowhere near as common as uh, Republicans' uh, use of those terms. So uh, Republicans really see uh, political debates as a conflict over uh, broad views of the, the role of government in society, and they uh, regularly use not only those terms, uh, but uh, the sort of definitions of those terms as they see them. Uh, whereas Democrats are much more likely to see uh, policymaking as uh, a debate over what specifically to do to solve particular social problems that are disproportionately affecting particular groups. Mm. Uh, so you see uh, much less often their use of sort of uh, broad values or their defense of, for example, using the government more often uh, to solve social problems. They don't uh, defend it in those broad terms. And you, in your article, um, Ezra's article, where you were cited so much, they it, there's a uh, a statistic given that 73% of republican voters say that they are conservative but only 42% of democrat voters say they're liberal right so the uh, there's certainly a difference in in self identification uh, the the use of those terms uh, and uh, also in just open-ended responses, how they describe their attachments to the political parties. So uh, not only do Republican voters uh, use the terms more and are willing to consider themselves conservatives, but when they talk about what they like and dislike about the two parties, uh, they continually bring up uh, the ideas behind liberalism and conservatism, and Democrats are much less likely to do that. Hmm. How much of this do you think is perpetuated by uh, you know, like conservative media? And and the media, just simply because we're throwing these labels out all the time, these and so and the conservative radio talk shows seem to be uh, so so much, uh, I guess, stronger. So many more listeners. Is is that impacting uh, this process of polarity, or have have they always been this polarized? Well, certainly we think it's uh, self-reinforcing uh, on on both sides, and the the media has a, a lot to to do with it. Uh, for a very long time, the conservative movement has uh, criticized uh, the mainstream media uh, for uh, being disproportionately uh, full of liberals, and and of course there are uh, more uh, there are disproportionately liberals uh, in the in the reporting profession, and they do the same with uh, academia, where uh, professors are disproportionately liberal, and so they have uh, built alternative institutions, uh, both uh, conservative media and uh, think tanks, uh, to try to sor- sort of serve as the alternative alternative information providers uh, for the Republican Party. Uh, and, in, and in large part, uh, they've uh, succeeded. Uh, Republicans are more likely uh, to rely on uh, their own uh, self-reported uh, uh, self, uh, conservative uh, media uh, and, and research. Uh, and uh, those uh, media outlets do uh, regularly reinforce the idea that the mainstream media is liberal. Uh, and uh, you have to uh, rely on a consciously conservative alternative. <laughs> oh, whole, I was yeah. just going to say there's there's a whole long history of failure uh, to build liberal media 
uh, in print there's been some success, but certainly on radio, uh, even after lots of money was thrown at Air America. That's right. Alternatives, uh, there just wasn't the audience, uh, both because liberals trust the mainstream media more and because uh, Democrats, uh, the wider constituency, don't necessarily think of themselves as uh, liberals right. uh, with, with liberal uh, media needed. Isn't it? It's, a, it's such a fascinating, uh, I guess, you know, stalemate that we, we've created almost this perfect system where to the degree that the Democrats need to serve their their more their um, higher number of constituencies like I mean, they have all of these different groups, right? All of these different um, specialized needs and, and groups that are vying for their attention. And as they go to take care of one of those groups and create legislation, the Republicans dig in because we don't want more government. Yeah. So, and I think you know one sort of basic feature of of government is that it tends to to grow in its scope over time, uh, both uh, uh, internationally and in the United States. So we usually, uh, rather than debate whether we should get rid of something we are already doing, we usually have debates over what additional things the government should do. Uh, and so the Republican base uh, sort of accurately perceives uh, that they elect representatives and those representatives fail to kind of turn back uh, the state to reduce the size and scope of government. Uh, and so I think that's why you see uh, sort of constant and uh, greater levels of energy on the right uh, to not only uh, against uh, the opposition party, but also against their own party leadership and sort of failing to achieve that goal. Mm. What um, is it true to in your article? Uh, it talked about liberals are might uh, are, are usually creating more policy making. They're doing more policy making, maybe passing more legislation, uh, more laws than the Republicans. Right, and you regularly so yes, the 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 basic patterns are there that you see uh, b- uh, both more legislation and more uh, significant broader legislation uh, when the Democrats control Congress than when the Republicans do. Uh, and you also see sort of more active uh, efforts to uh, pass laws among uh, Democratic uh, leaders than uh, Republican leaders. Um, but uh, you sometimes see Republicans sort of acknowledge that, you know, their goal is not to pass a lot of laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, if anything, they want to uh, repeal some. Uh, and I think I was I was just trying to point out that that uh, fits the the basic pattern of policymaking. Usually, if a new policy is going to happen, it's going to expand the scope of government right. rather than take away uh, something uh, that we already have. And so, it's uh, sort of natural that uh, Republicans will be the party that is uh, more amenable to uh, nothing happening <laughs> compared to new laws that pass that uh, expand government. So you hear about all the gridlock, and you're probably then hearing that from Democrats that need to move policy. And the Republicans are semi-happy because we're not creating more policy. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they would say they're happy. Yeah. I think they would say, you know, they have this broad goal of, of reducing the size and scope of government uh, that just hasn't been achieved yet. Uh, but if the choice is between a, a new law that's going to expand government and doing nothing, there's a lot more people on the Republican side that are that are willing to, to, to side with doing nothing. Oh, yeah. In fact, uh, John Boehner passed um, – uh, past what was he um he had a great job john boehner was over the house uh speaker of the house he uh he he had a quote that you put in there we ought or that ezra put in there we ought not be judged on how many laws we ought to be judged on how many laws we repeal which is that philosophy right we we shouldn't we should shouldn't be judged on how many laws we're passing but how many laws 
we're repealing, and even as humans, I guess, the ideology is how many laws we don't need because we're just living a healthier, better life. Um, right. So that that echoes a statement that, that Goldwater uh, made in yeah. the 60s and that uh, John Sununu, who was uh, Bush's chief of right. staff, actually said, you know, if, if Congress wants to show up and uh, uh, vote to adjourn, that's fine with us. Mm. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, that's uh, right. There's, Whatever. There, there's sort of a history of that attitude. Well, I guess, too, it could get into why they they might, for ideology, be willing to shut down the government. Right. I think uh, certainly uh, there's uh, more uh, general faith in, in government on the Democratic side. And in addition, uh, there's sort of more uh, a view that, that brinksmanship uh, might uh, be effective on the Republican side than the Democratic side because uh, Democrats are sort of always trying uh, small expansions of government and uh, major initiatives, uh, and Republicans are, are trying to sort of uh, somehow rein, rein it in, uh, and uh, so they, they view uh, the usual policymaking process uh, accurately as a, a recipe for sort of small expansions of government, and so they're more willing to, to say, let's stop the process. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Matt Grossman. Um, from Michigan State University. He is the new director of the Institute of, uh, for Public Policy and Social Research at MSU. And uh, we're discussing his uh, research in asymmetric politics. And maybe why we're, we're kind of, we're, we've, we've designed a system that is going to create some gridlock and uh, try to understand it when we come back. Stick with us, folks. More with Dr. Matt Grossman right here on the Matt Townsend Show. To the Matt Townsend Show, on the phone with us, Dr. Matt Grossman, and uh, he's he's talking about uh, a theory um, about the asymmetric politics project that he's working on. He's trying to basically, uh, through research, scientific methodology, prove the differences between Republicans and Democrats, and and how they how they end up probably acting as a system, I guess. Um, there, there's this inherent system that's taking place, and th- I mean, think about it. If if the Democrats, for example, have hundreds of small social groups that are their constituencies that they're trying to serve and work with, along with all the voters, but they're still trying to appease and and work with maybe thousands. I don't know the numbers of uh, interest groups, and they're they need to go compromise on policy. With the GOP, who who might have fewer constituencies or you know social groups, but especially even groups that don't necessarily fight against each other on their issues. I mean, the National Rifle Association might not always go head to head with the Chamber of Commerce, right? Or the Right to Life Foundation. So they, they each side has people vying for their attention and reinforcing on the right the ideology, reinforcing on the left the need to compromise and create movement and uh, create policy. So he's, he's studying it, and we're honored to have him uh, on the show with us. For me, truly, it was, it's eye-opening to see this uh, backed up academically. 
Again, Dr. Matt Grossman is an associate professor of political science at Michigan State University and the new director of the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research at MSU. Uh, Dr. Grossman, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be with you. Does this change? Like, say, we get a new president, right? So that'll change everything, right? We get a we get a we get a Donald. Well, let's not use Donald Trump. We get a we get another GOP leader. That'll change the gridlock, won't it? <laughs> uh, well, we think that there's uh, this long-running pattern of public opinion that sort of supports uh, both parties. Uh, first, uh, people are conservative in general terms, but they're liberal in specific terms. So you might think about it as they agree with the Republican Party in principle, but they agree with the Democratic Party in practice. Mm. That That is, they say, uh, therefore, uh, reducing the size and scope of government uh, and uh, uh, upholding uh, traditional American values. Uh, but when it comes to uh, specific policy issues and the sort of new on the table, they tend to say, yes, let's uh, not get in, get rid of much that the government is currently doing, and let's expand a little bit in uh, all of these specific areas like education and health care. So I think uh, that tends to support uh, a, a potential majority for, for both uh, parties. Now, you do see a, a backlash uh, when uh, each party comes to power. So uh, we see this in elections where the midterm election following a new president tends to support the other political party. Uh, and uh, we also see trends in public opinion where both of those indicators move against the party of the president. So uh, if the when the Democrats uh, got in charge, they uh, passed a whole bunch of new policies like Obamacare, and you immediately saw a conservative reaction in public opinion. Mm. Both those general and specific attitudes, even though they maintain their differences, uh, both moved rightward. So if we were to see a, a, a Ted Cruz or a Marco Rubio uh, president, what we would expect is that they would – uh, move policy in a conservative direction, uh, and uh, they would see, also see a backlash uh, where uh, voters uh, sort of moved more liberal in their uh, public opinions in response to that. Wow. I mean, it, was, it really is a system then. Huh? It, it, it balances itself. When one receives too much power or takes too much power, usurps too much power, it will eventually balance the system in time. Well, certainly that happens in, in public opinion. Uh, we say that the, the public is, is thermostatic. That means they say, well, not too hot, not too hot, not too cold, not too cold, and they sort of react against the direction uh, of uh, public policy. I think uh, the more institutional problem is that uh, we, our institutions are really not set up for, for that. They're not set up for, they're set up for uh, broad compromises, uh, for policymaking to be a slow process where uh, we breach agreement uh, between two chambers and the president. Uh, and so uh, it, that's why uh, you sort of see gridlock uh, where you might not see it in a system where only one party could win uh, at once, uh, like Britain, and would be in charge of the executive and legislative right. uh, branch and be able to enact its program. I mean, you even see it in the debates, right? You see a Ted Cruz who's probably polling more like an ideologue uh, and and unwilling to compromise on certain things, and he was beating up Rubio, who was who had compromised on an immigration deal with Chuck Schumer, and I mean it really is like so to be a moderate would be somebody more in the middle, I guess, willing to compromise a little bit but do it for ideology. It, it really does become and does play out in the actual election. 
Right, and consistently we see that uh, Republican candidates tend to attack each other for sort of not being conservative enough uh, or being a kind of a fake conservative. So uh, Rubio returned fire against uh, Cruz uh, by uh, talking about his insufficient support for the military. Right. Uh, and so, you know, the, you didn't see a lot of, uh, you know, I'm <laughs> I'm the more uh, a moderate candidate uh, and I'll uh, be willing to, to sacrifice uh, uh, principles in order to get something done. Uh, you really don't see that as a winning argument on the Republican side. <laughs> what, do you, what does the average Joe do? I always like to go to the average Joe, Matt. What, what am I supposed to do when I see this kind of massive shift or this massive just entrenchment? Um, and I feel, you know, I, I, I might consider myself a conservative, but I also feel a, a pang of compassion and love uh, that might be branding me as a liberal <laughs> Um, what am I supposed to do to shift any of this? <laughs> well, I think it, it is hard to, to split the difference between uh, the two political parties, uh, especially in a system uh, that is uh, so polarized. Uh, I think uh, that you know each party has sort of a, a problem uh, that they uh, that w- that we argue that they would benefit from 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 working on. For the Republican side, the problem is translating those principles. Uh, into an active policy agenda uh, that is uh, at least some way achievable and that they can make incremental progress toward, mm. um, which they haven't been able to do. Uh, for the Democrats, it's uh, to, to work on what is the broader vision of, of government in society uh, that they uh, want to put forward, uh, and can they, can they justify it rather than just sort of say, we need to do this one thing to solve this one problem for this group. Uh, is there some broader vision behind their initiatives uh, that they that they want to to try to sell to the public? Uh, and both parties, uh, for fairly good reasons, have uh, sort of ignored those those things. They've stuck with their firmer ground, right? Uh, rather than uh, trying to to solve uh, where the other party is doing better. Are there are, are those? I guess that's where a leader comes in, right? So a democratic leader would be able to create the broader vision of purpose of government, explain the true principle, the ideology behind uh, the liberal movement, instead of it just being a scattered movement based on whatever the constituency needed. Um, and the 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 leader of the GOP would be able to create action and moderation and movement. Um, is that the role of the leader then? Well, I, I think uh, you know that that would be good for good for democracy if both parties uh, moved toward uh, trying to to solve their their bigger uh, problems with the electorate. But you can see that in any given election or any given policy debate, uh, it's not in the interest of either party uh, to try to to solve their weaknesses. It's in their interest to sort of right. uh, stick with their strengths. So you see uh, Democrats, uh, for example, on the. Uh, Obamacare debate, uh, uh, rather than sort of articulating a general vision, just sort of saying, well, you know, college students are going to be able to stay on their health care for longer, and uh, women are going to be able to get access to birth control, et cetera. Uh, and uh, then Republicans saying, you know, this is a government takeover of health care, and we should have a more private sector, uh, a big, bigger role for the private sector. And so then that's reflected in public opinion. You see people really don't like Obamacare as a package, even if they like a whole bunch of the individual right. provisions. It's so, <laughs> so true. Yeah. So, so I think uh, in, any, in any moment, each party has an incentive to stick with their strength, uh, even though uh, it might be better uh, if uh, we could get them to focus on their weaknesses. Perhaps that is the, the wind beneath Donald Trump's 
Trump's wings is the simple idea that he's perceived as achieving action. He's he's perceived as the guy that's going to create movement on the principle. Right. Well, one thing I think I'd point out there is it's just a sign that uh, the Republican electorate, although uh, united around sort of uh, broad goals or the ideas of conservatism, are not uh, necessarily united around the specific policy proposals that might come with that. So uh, Donald Trump, while defining himself as a conservative, has a whole bunch of policy positions that don't really fit with our Hmm. uh, uh, traditional uh, definitions of conservatism, and uh, so does the Republican electorate. So so that's sort of the opening uh, for him is if he can say, you know, I'm articulating this uh, vision uh, in a way that uh, mixes with uh, some different policy positions that maybe are more popular, like actually expanding Social Security and Medicare, uh, then, uh, you know, then he has that vision. Uh, but another thing I'd say on that is just that, you know, this is uh, not necessarily an American-specific uh, uh, kind of uh, movement we see. Uh, sort of nativist uh, or ethnocentric uh, parties in most other uh, countries uh, and public opinion all around the world uh, in most in, in every industrialized country is is largely uh, sort of anti-immigration uh, and nationalistic uh, and so it's always an opening uh, for uh, a more independent candidate uh, to try to uh, speak to those uh, grievances. Wow, so it's uh, it's it's bigger than just the U.S. Even that's great. Yeah, I mean, I think you see them elsewhere. You just usually see them in uh, minor parties elsewhere in the world. But because we have a two-party system, uh, it means that a lot of these people are either out of the system. Right. <laughs> they think that, that, you know, they accurately perceive that, that both of the major parties have generally been in favor of increased immigration, uh, for example. Um, but it also means that it's a, it's a uh, important faction within uh, – it can be an important faction within the Republican Party. Well, we, uh, we appreciate you. I love the work you're doing. Again, Dr. Matt Grossman. Good luck with the Asymmetric Politics Project. Keep it up. Thank you so much. If you can figure this out, Matt, I'm telling you, you're going to be a billionaire. (laughs) You will know. You will understand the code. That's good stuff. It takes a Ph.D. and a project and a bunch of students helping him to uh, just to understand what's going on with this stuff. Crazy. Interesting, folks, trying to give you the tools you need to make better decisions. Uh, You know, we got to lead better. If And you got to understand what's going on instead of just being inflamed and enraged about everything that's being said in the world of politics. Anyway, interesting stuff. Uh, we'll take a break. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the show, the program where we give you the tools, the information you need to live healthier, happier lives Welcome to the show. Hey, uh, you know, today we are talking about selfishness. What? <laughs> Terry looked Why up are you like, looking at me? Are you talking to me? You're looking right at me no. when you said that. No, no, because you were on your phone. Well, I was just looking at... You were just getting ready. I understand. Yeah. But um, because maybe what's happening to our world is we are so caught up in self. You know? We're caught up in... Our lives, becoming self-aware, becoming self, uh, what's the word, like self, 
centered. Centered, making your dreams come true. To the point where you step on everybody else? Yeah. Okay. In fact, many apparently are dying because of this self-focus. There is a trend. They call it death by selfie. It's an especially embarrassing and tragic way to go. But it's coming less and less unusual as people seek out extreme and clever shots without paying attention to their surroundings. In Mumbai, India, the which is the selfie death capital of the world, 19 of the world's 49 selfie-linked deaths have occurred within the limits of, uh, of their area. Do you think they advertise that with the uh, their uh, tourism yeah. board? Come to Mumbai. We're the, the, we're the texting death capital of the world. No. But so they're making a law because no more. We, we can't do this anymore. Uh, Mumbai is, by the way, one of the world's largest cities with 1.25 billion citizens, which is crazy. But selfie deaths occur, you know, with people falling off ledges or cliffs. They go out on crazy, you know, they climb out on a building to get a really good picture hanging over the edge. No, take one more step back. To die by selfie? Are you kidding? So in order to prevent further loss of lives, Mumbai is creating 16 no-selfie zones throughout the city. (laughs) The locations all tend to be risky, uh, picture-perfect locations, such as spots along the coast where there is no railing. Uh, Getting caught in off-limit areas uh, will result in a a 1,200-rupee fine or about 18 U.S. dollars. You've seen the warnings of don't take selfies with wild animals. Yeah. Because people are doing that. They try to take a selfie with a grizzly, and then all of a sudden, Mama Grizzly grabs you. I'm going to cuddle that bear. Take this picture. Make sure you get it. (laughs) Or the tigers. There's a lot of tiger pictures out there. People trying to pose with a man-eating animal. It's all right. Go ahead. But if you believe in evolution, shouldn't we just let people take selfies? There's a lot of of, uh, strength there because you're weeding out... Yeah, people who probably are going to end up there anyways. They're not. They may not behavior. be the fittest. So let them go. Hey, I'm going to just go sit on that um, buffalo. Does it make us stronger as a people? Yeah, I have a joke about that. If you want, actually, no, none this, of your jokes are allowed on no the more, show. No more. No yeah, more. This one, a 20 foot high sculpture in England on the grounds of Salisbury Cathedral, had to be relocated because walkers kept bumping into it <laughs> while texting. Oh my god! They're texting their heads now. It's a six foot tall. There's uh, six foot four clearance beneath the center of these of the sta- of the sculpture, which is of two clasped hands. Yeah, and people kept running into it because they're looking down, looking at their phone, and oh, what is and happening? And they would hit. They they had problems. I, I think it was in England. They'd run into phone poles. Yeah, and and in New York, people running into parking meters and hey, stuff. Hey Jerry, just, how did you get those? How'd you get that cut over your eye? <laughs> I was just walking. I was texting. Ran into a post. <laughs> It's crazy. Yeah. So today on the show, we'll be um, speaking with a, a, a researcher, a philosopher, a professor of philosophy at uh, the University of Chicago, who just received a $2 million uh, grant, basically, to do a project on helping people get over themselves. Hmm. And uh, the idea is more and more um, people were becoming so self-absorbed. And we're so into our self-expression. Like, think about how many times in the political world we everybody thinks that what they say matters. Not even just the candidates, but everyone thinks they have to express. And you got to or you'll die. So she's basically wants to talk about 
and, and, and figure out some tools, some skills about how to help people get over themselves and transcend themselves. And she, she raised the money, and they're doing, a, I think, like a two-year, uh, 28-month project on virtue, on the virtue and happiness of self-transcendence. Hmm. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So we'll be talking to her in just a few minutes, uh, Dr. Could, Candace Vogler. Couldn't it just say, put your phone away? Wouldn't that help? Well, that would help okay. one way. But part of it, too, is how many times did we tell, do we tell everybody that you need to, you need to express? And that's true. In yeah. a, a certain situation, but there's sometimes you're actually more powerful if you don't. Sometimes if somebody says something completely stupid, you don't need to respond. Everyone in the room knows it's stupid. Just let it sit. Let, let it, it sit, sit there and be itself. You don't need to comment on what everyone else is thinking. Right. So Unless you're running for president and then say it over and over and over. And again, expression is the American way. I get it. But there are a lot of other countries that also see there's power sometimes in not expressing. Yes. Just just relax. So she, she's going to touch all sides of this. Self-expression, self-promotion, how much of that is going on in our world, self-advancement, self-actualization, the need to be authentic. Anyway, we'll get into all of it. These are – and it's kind of a third rail in many worlds because in psychology there's a lot of focus on self. And yet in religion, there's, there's more of a focus on not – don't get so caught up in yourself, which uh, this professor believes is one of the reasons why we don't study. Like in philosophy, they don't study this very much because it's too connected to kind of religion. Or with religion, the idea of focus on others and you'll find yourself. Exactly. you got to lose yourself to find yourself. But then you go to psychology and they a lot of times are saying, no, 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 no. You first. Yeah. You've got to know yourself. Hmm. And once you know yourself, then you can help others. But what I've learned is I don't – I can't even know who I am except in relation to others or in relation to my God or in relation to something. Who am I? So uh, there's a my, whole philosophical side. In here. my case, don't talk to others. Yeah, yeah. Well, your case is Just different. exist. But that was cute. You took your son the other day to the zoo. We went to the zoo yesterday. How many dads get to go to the zoo with their kids? I, I get a lot of sideways glances when I, I walk cool. in middle of the day. It was that with guy my doing kid. It. It's like, hey, did they ever come up and like, is that really your kid? <laughs> no, but you're just kind of when my kid runs off and he's looking at an, at an exhibit, and I'm kind of standing out of the way. People yeah. kind of look at you strange because you're just some guy standing there, and there's no kid <laughs> around. What are you doing? Are you at the zoo by yourself? And Tom? it's not like you're there with your with your entire family. It's just you and your kid. So right. I ignore him after a while. I honestly, I just. Pop in my headphones and listen to music. But <laughs> is that what you do? That's what I do while your kid's talking to you. Hey, um, here there's a poll that came out. This is this is part of this kind of selfie movement. But listen to this: some borrowers, like student loans, right? A lot of kids have student or kids. A lot of these younger generation have uh, student loans, and th- this is based on the poll. There are people that would cut their pinky off just to get rid of their student loans. How far would you go to pay off your student loans? A new poll shows some graduated student loan borrowers will willingly go to extremes to pay off outstanding student debt. That includes pain, suffering, and possibly even a move to Syria. I'll go to Syria. Like, absolutely. Will you get rid of my loans? Listen to this. 57, 58% would say they would give up social media for life to get rid of their student loans. 57% said they'd give up coffee for life. 57% said they would take a punch from boxer Mike Tyson <laughs> for life. Um, 
Uh, that that would hurt every day. Yes, it would. 56% said they would abstain from alcohol or drugs. 40% said they would take one year off of their life expectancy hmm. to have to get rid of their student debt. We'll take it off at the end where it's going to be rough anyways. Yeah. You just enjoy it now. I'll right. just have the good years. Absolutely. 35% said they'd give up texting for life. 28% uh, said that they would name their firstborn daughter Sally Mae. Okay. <laughs> That's pathetic. Uh, Fannie Mae. I might name mine Fannie Mae. 20.47% would wear the same outfit every day for life if they get rid of their student loans. Huh. What's going on? 5% basically said they'd move to Syria for life. 4% said they would contract a random sexually transmitted disease for life. Wow. Well, when you (sighs) graduate with $20,000, $40,000 in debt. Yeah. The average debt is 31000 And, you know, some of these people aren't making 31000 after they've graduated. This is why the Bernie, the Bern, Bernie Sanders, he's, he's taking off because they'd rather have Bernie and get their, you know, maybe some of their debt taken care of than have to live in Syria. Many would say if you actually did elect Bernie, it's like living in Syria. Could be. Who knows? Just ideas, folks. Uh, What's going on around the rest of the world, Terry? Thanks, Matt. Mitt Romney suggested Wednesday there may be a bombshell within Donald Trump's tax information. You know, frankly, I think we have good reason to believe that there's a bombshell in Donald Trump's taxes. Either he's not anywhere near as wealthy as he says he is, or he hasn't been paying the kind of taxes we would expect him to pay, or or perhaps he hasn't been giving money to to the vets or to the disabled like he's been telling us he's been doing. Mitt Romney on Fox News. Interesting. Talking to, what, Neil Cavuto, which I think sounds like a great restaurant. Ah, I love Cavuto. The former Republican Massachusetts governor who has yet to endorse a candidate was subjected to insane, intense, well, I said insane, intense tax scrutiny during his failed 2012 presidential run against Barack Obama. Now that he has assumed an elder statesman role for the party, Romney believes the GOP candidacy should undergo similar tax vetting. Trump responded on Twitter, Mitt Romney, who totally blew an election that should have been won and whose tax returns made him look like a fool, is now playing a tough guy. Yeah, you may. I mean, I guess this is this is the establishment air quotes saying somebody's got to take a shot at somebody's got to take a shot at Trump and nobody none of the candidates dare to. No, because you're going to be a target at that point. Donald Trump, as we're speaking of, picked up yet another win on Wednesday following his first place finish in Nevada when he finally landed his first formal endorsement from a member of Congress. Really? Representative Chris Collins of New York announced Wednesday that he is throwing his support behind Trump in the presidential race because of his guts and fortitude. Another GOP debate tonight, 830 on CNN. Yeah, interesting. Guts and fortitude. That's right. 16 protesters who were part of the six-week armed occupation of the National Wildlife Refuge in Oregon pled not guilty Wednesday to charges of conspiring to impede federal officers. Ten of the 25 people indicted in the incident uh, appeared in court in Portland while six others waived their rights to attend the arraignment. The arraignment came a day after the FBI announced it had finished examining the refuge for evidence and the trenches that were there, if you remember those. Mm, Federal prosecutors said they expect a grand jury to return two superseding indictments that could bring new charges and defendants, according to court documents, a status hearing was set for March 9th. Wow. See what happens. I have a feeling that's going to, you know, make some people mad. The Suns 
Caliphate Army, a group of hackers associated with a militant Islamic group, posted a video on Tuesday that shows photos of Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg and Twitter's Jack Dorsey engulfed in flames and targets for bullets. Wow. A 25-minute video entitled Flames of the Supporters. <laughs> because they're supporting going anti, uh, you know, what are they called? Anti-terrorism techniques. Shutting down yeah. uh, Twitter Twitter and Facebook accounts associated with ISIS. The pair is apparently being targeted for the recent efforts to combat terrorist activities. Both social networks in recent months have announced campaigns to, elim- to eliminate activities by Islamic State extremists on their platforms by suspending accounts, deleting posts promote, that promote violence and terrorism. Mm. So that brings them to be It target. almost makes you not want to get involved. Absolutely. A la Apple. <laughs> and that's the uh, – uh, while Tex, uh, Texas universities, they're preparing for the state's new campus carry law to take effect August, August 1st. Oh, yeah. Where students can open carry on campus. Oh, that's going to get crazy. Faculty members at the University of Houston have been told that they should avoid sensitive subjects in class that might in- instigate those with weapons. <laughs> the law will allow anyone licensed for concealed carry to bring weapons in- onto campus except at private schools – that have chosen to forbid it, and uh, Baylor mm. and I think they're Rice. I think they both have decided not to yeah, have any guns, have guns on campus. Here. A slideshow prepared by the University of Houston faculty senate advised some professors to just quote not go there on some subjects if the if they sense anger and to drop certain items from their curriculum in order to avoid uncomfortable classroom situations once guns enter the picture. Well, many people think that they're all too liberal anyway. So maybe this is how you... I guess. That is crazy. It used to be professors needed tenure because they needed to feel safe to say whatever they wanted to say. So now they get tenure, but you've got people carrying guns, and now they can't say what they want to say. Excellent. Well, what do you do, folks? What do you do? You pull on one side of America, you impact the other side. Back and forth the game goes. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll be joined by Dr. Candace Vogler, and uh, we'll be talking about some of her research and a, a new project she's undertaking to help people get over themselves and uh, hopefully, you know, maybe pick up their game, be a little less self-focused. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Let me take a selfie. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Yeah, let's just go take a selfie. Did you know that over one million selfies are taken each day? Technographics uh, released an infographic that indicates that 34% of men state that they retouch every selfie. 13% of females say they retouch every selfie. It turns out... That selfies are uh, most popular in Australia, with the U.S. and Canada following. Uh, Luster Premium White conducted a survey and estimated that an average millennial could take over 25,000 selfies within a lifetime. Those of you that don't know what a selfie is, it's a picture you take with your camera or I guess your phone by yourself, of yourself, and something maybe in in uh, behind you. Sometimes you'll see President uh, Clinton or President Obama do it. You'll see the candidates grab a, a camera and take a picture with somebody. Selfies, folks. So why the rise in selfies? And does it mean that we are becoming a more self-absorbed uh, country? Our guest today, Dr. Candace Vog- uh, Vogler, 
um, joins us from Chicago to talk about uh, some research she's doing and a project that she is undertaking to basically um, help us transcend ourselves. Uh, Dr. Candace Vogler, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me. You bet. This is, to me, a really interesting subject. I mean, we, we tied it to selfies, but this is this is an age-old issue, right? I mean, our philosophers, because you're a philosopher, basically, right? And yes. you've been this – is, this isn't a new concept of people becoming too self-absorbed. No, I don't think there's anything brand new about it. I think it's a kind of central temptation for a whole lot of people and has been for a very long time. Talk to us about um, your research. You did just receive, uh, um, I guess, some money, a grant to, to, to do a research project about getting over yourself. Basically, um, we've got a, what we've got is a $2 million grant from the John Templeton Foundation called Virtue, Happiness, and the Meaning of Life. Hmm. Uh, and the inspiration for this grant came from people who are actually leading pretty solid lives um, but find themselves at odds with themselves in all kinds of ways. They're pretty good people. They've got something that looks like a solid family, whatever counts as that for themselves. They've got jobs that don't grind them into the dust. Um, They've got some kind of community. And there's this kind of sense that these lives they've worked so hard to put into place for themselves are hollow. So for me, this started as a question about the difference between people who felt like their lives were hollowed out and people who didn't have that sense, whether or not they were sort of stunningly privileged um, by global standards. Uh, So what what we're doing is getting together a group of 25 very prominent scholars. They're um, cognitive scientists, psychologists, people who do religious studies of various kinds, and philosophers to think about the hypothesis that part of what's going wrong in these lives that seem empty is that people aren't looking far enough beyond themselves to find a sense of meaning. Interesting. That if you can understand your life as lived in relation to something that is that goes well beyond personal expression, personal actualization, and even the safety and comfort of members of your immediate family or community then you've got a much better chance of being able to enjoy what you've put in place for yourself mm-hmm. and yeah. find it meaningful in a day-to-day way. And that's self-transcendence, right? It's, and it's... that is self-transcendence, and there's lots of different kinds of it. Well, it, how amazing. Like, this this seems like such a novel idea, but it also <laughs> it's, it blows my mind that this is, like, novel, like, because you got a headline. One of the headlines was that you actually you received two million dollars for this research, and it's like everyone was surprised. But yeah, but this has been going on, and I know you use um, uh, Aquinas um, as as a source of kind of your your philosophical you know underpinning of all of this. But but talk to us, teach us about what why we aren't naturally kind of moving toward transcendence. Well, I mean. I... From some, if you've got some kinds of religious positions, people think that we are. It's just that we get in our own ways all the time. Hmm. Um, so the figure I work on a lot, as she mentioned, is, is, is Thomas Aquinas, who's a 13th century philosopher uh, and theologian, basically. Um, 
I'm not myself Catholic, but he's a major source for Catholic theology. Um, but Aquinas's view is that um, the interesting thing about human beings is that we have all these different kinds of capacities and powers. We have emotional and feeling capacities and powers. We sense things and perceive things. We have capacities to love and to think and reason and all this stuff. Um, but that um, we, those powers tend not to always cooperate with one another. So, I mean, I sometimes say that, like, in my apartment, the cats that live in my apartment, if they're going for something, it tends to be the kind of thing that's pretty good for cats. Right. Uh, it's play, it's play, it's food, it's right. love, it's whatever. It's, a, it's the best place to sit on the windowsill on a sunny day. Um, so they're going at what they, the humans in my apartment have a much harder time going straight for things that are good for human beings. Yeah. It's much easier for us to go after things that um, are not good for us in all kinds of ways. And it's much easier for us to be um, sort of insensitive to the world we're inhabiting, to one another, to all kinds of stuff. And, mm. and it's much easier for us to get caught up psychologically being just very, very worried about... Um, Self-expression, self-actualization, self-enhancement, comfort, all these kinds of things. Um, that, 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 to me, is the American way. Yeah, well, it's, it's been the way for a lot of different people. In a lot uh, yeah, of for a lot of different it, it really, but like you, you bet, it's interesting because one of the things you brought up in, in uh, one of your articles was the fact that you're, you're coming at this – so, you know, theological scholars would study this more naturally because it's related to their religion like Aquinas. But um, you're saying psychologists might even study it to some degree, but this is a newer idea to study in philosophy. Yeah, it's actually – pretty new in philosophy, um, this way of going about it, even though a lot of our historical sources, if you take a look at them, are basically saying you need to be connected to some good that's bigger than you are yeah, right. in order for things to go well for you. Um, and that's a fairly common theme in a lot of philosophical work um, in, well, European based philosophy, certainly clear in a lot of Asian philosophy. Yeah, that's so true. It's, it's really, it's a pretty common thing there. I mean, the, the thing that was most interesting to me is that the term self-transcendence is one that we're taking from empirical psychology. Right. In and, fact, Maslow was the first time I ever heard the word used. Yeah. Like self-actualization, highest, transcendence. Yeah, self-transcendence is higher than self-actualization yeah. in yeah, in his, um, in his yeah. most mature work, <laughs> in the end of the day, he thought self-transcendence is much higher than self-actualization. But that's um, but transcendence is me kind of getting out of me and into helping the the in everyone else. Well, that's – yeah, that's certainly the way that Maslow is understanding it. Um, one of our psychologists – Dan McAdams, who's the chair of the psychology department at Northwestern University, studies it in connection with intergenerational Mm. families. So if I understand the good that I've got as something that was made possible for me by the struggle of ancestors back there, I may not even know their names, right? I mean, ancestors back behind me, and I understand what I'm trying to do 
here as making some good, possibly good I won't even be able to imagine, possible for people in the future so that my own life is in that kind of multi-generational context, that is a form of self-transcendence. If I'm working for the environment really hard, yeah. um, I'm working for a, for a sustainability or something. I'm working for something that it will benefit um, people I may never meet and other kinds of animals I may never meet as well <laughs> or never see. Right. If I'm, you know, if I'm some incredibly dedicated intellectual who's like, I'm after truth here. Truth is important. I'm connected to something. I'm seeing my work in light of something much bigger. Um, And for most people, if they have powerful religious convictions, then some piece of the lives they lead are led in relation to the divine or to something sacred or something that deserves reverence. And what's amazing about this, uh, Dr. Vogler, is the idea, I guess, that the way you just described that, Self-transcendence can happen in any realm, in any professional endeavor, in any art. It can happen in anything. It's just more my focus. Yeah. It just has to do with how you understand what you're up to and what it connects to. You don't need to be a monk. You don't need to be – you don't need to be a devout whatever. You just need – you need a shift in your view. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that – in the United States, probably the poster child for the problem here was a, an American writer called David Foster Wallace, who, along with a lot of his friends, suddenly realized that he was stunningly successful and leading a completely empty life. Like he had achieved all the goals he wanted to achieve, and his life was completely meaningless. Empty, yeah. Him. Yeah, completely empty. I mean, it was for him a lethal situation. He killed himself. Oh. But, um,. Which is terrible, but, right? Um, well, and you might make maybe that's why so many are committing suicide. They well, they're think, so lonely, they're so empty. I think um, that it is just very perplexing if you've been raised on a steady diet that lets you think that self achievement, self actualization, and self expression are the highest goals you could have, mm. and then you find yourself feeling. Um, like you've expressed yourself, actualized yourself, and realized your goals, and you're, all of that is leaves you alienated from anything that might be provide you with a stable and sustaining source of meaning in your life. Mm. Uh, I, really, I, I agree, and powerful. Um, let's take a break again. We're speaking with Dr. Candice Vogler, and she is um, she is the uh, David B. and Clara E. Stern Professor of Philosophy and, and a professor in the college at the University of Chicago, and also a principal investigator on this new project, Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life, um, that was funded by the John Templeton Foundation. And we're going to come back, continue discussing this. Uh, Probably this soul-changing uh, concept of self-transcendence. Um, more, more about how to get more out of life and more out of uh, everything we do. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
Well, I actually do. Yes, I do. <laughs> Sorry, so vain. Hey, um, everybody, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about getting over yourself and uh, honored to have um, Dr. Candace Vogler joining us from um, the University of Chicago. Uh, and she is a philosopher and a professor of philosophy at the, col- at, uh, the College um, of Philosophy at the University of Chicago. She also is um, putting together a, a program, a project, called Virtue, Happiness, and the Meaning of Life, and it's funded by, the John, funded by the John Templeton Foundation. She's trying to help us all understand that there's more to life than maybe just, you know, getting what you want, getting your dreams, your goals accomplished, and expressing yourself. Maybe, maybe there's a way to transcend yourself and maybe connect through your history with your family, through helping people uh, on, you know, by, by, in, by inventing something, you know, writing something, um, building something that, that can be appreciated and helpful to others for, that you'll never meet. Kind of a selflessness of this. She calls that self-transcendence, and we're honored to have her. Dr. Candace Vogler, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. One of the things that I, I found in reading about some of your work um, the 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 antidote i guess to this or to our selfishness is um it's it's not necessarily what i would naturally think is the fix but it's really what you're saying it's virtues it's 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 go for virtues not necessarily goal not necessarily i, I don't know what you'd call it uh accomplishment yeah i mean we think that um I think that there's, if you have the sort of right understanding, I mean, it's hard, virtue is an odd word. Yeah, it is. Um, It uh, it basically points to, in my work and the work that we're doing, a quality of your character that you work to cultivate that basically allows you to pursue things that are good reasonably. And and effectively, and in a way that helps you develop the ability to actually take pleasure in being a good person, um, those kinds of things. And so there's four of them, four cardinal virtues that are the traditional ones. There's justice, which has to do with behaving fairly and decently and in the right way with your fellow human beings, but more generally just in your external actions, there's temperance, which has to do with not overindulging Hmm. in things, with being kind of reasonable in the ways that you um, move about with things that you find very attractive or shiny. Um, There's fortitude or courage, which has to do with being afraid of the right things, Yeah. And being willing to take stands when necessary for things that really matter. Um, so, and there's practical wisdom, um, or in Latin, prudentia, prudence, um, which has to do with putting all of these things together in a way that allows you to lend some order to your life. Now, each one of those virtues in the picture that I'm working with finds its happiest home, its natural mode, 
in sort of pursuing common good. What's great about them, about having them, is that they help me to participate in pursuit of a common good of mm. some kind, yeah. which is more than just, you know, the added up sum of individual bits of pleasure, happiness, or senses of achievement or something like that. It's a, it's a general good that benefits more than just the people I happen to know. Um, and that has been the sort of good that people have gone after for some time, um, usually before me and probably with any luck will after me. So that's kind of the basic structure. And this, um, the, I mean, ancient philosophers, ancient Greek philosophers were hopeful that just working to have a good character all by itself would be enough to give you um, a very good life, mm. it, that, that there was a kind of pleasure to be had in it. Um, the sort of medieval shift in that, um, which took place largely because of Christianity, um, which is not a minor thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty big shift. Uh, came to, yeah, pretty big shift. Um, sort of broadened the scope of things there and m- made it articulated more clearly, I think, um, an account of what it's like to be to lead a fully human life a really good fully human life and that's a life that is that goes that is understands itself as being involved in pursuit of good that goes way beyond private advantage and individual well-being hmm. even if your sense of individual well-being extends out to you know your immediate family and the people in your neighborhood or something so it almost took it off of instead of you just kind of in your own little world growing a strong, powerful character um, and virtue and wisdom and all of that, then the kind of that – the newer philosophy was more that, OK, that's great, but take your character and serve the world, serve the people, yeah. serve the greater, the greater good. Serve a greater good. Powerful. Don't just um, – you know, it's not enough to just have um... – to look inward and think, ah, my soul, it's so beautiful. Right, right. <laughs> it's kind of like, if it really is that beautiful, it should be of use to others, too. That's so true. And, I mean, it really is. So these are, these. this is, the I guess, the philosophical side of all of this. There's, it's the underlying theory. And and then I, get, I just think of some of today's psychology is is also still more about you. Come to know you. To thine own self be true, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly one very powerful kind of work. Although, you know, interestingly, a lot of the research that's been done around self-transcendence has been done by um, nurses and Hmm. clinical psychologists who are working, nurses particularly working with geriatric patients and patients with very serious illness oncology patients, cancer patients, who are sort of who get who have a huge stake in figuring out what kinds of things will improve the health outcomes for their patients. And it turns out that if their patients have this self transcendent understanding of themselves, they've got much better health outcomes. Um, which is kind of 
stunning because one of the things that a severe illness can do to most people is sort of produce a turn inward, like you become yeah. hyper-concerned about the about your health and then about what your health trouble is doing to your immediate family. Sure. Usually, I think. Yeah, and kind of, yeah, circle the wagons, protect yeah, yourself. Exactly, around, especially, you know, you've got one of these very serious illnesses. And what they found was that the patients who had um, a self-transcendent, in this sense, attitude and understanding of the, their lives ha- got better. <laughs> the older people who were that way had a real stake in their lives and were enjoying themselves in a way that a lot of the other geriatric patients were not. The, huh. you know, so it's got it's got its feet on the ground in all kinds of odd places. Yeah. Um, it's also part of social psychology, the psychologists who are working on um, questions about family and generativity and that sort of thing, and just um, attachment to the ongoingness of human life. Mm. That sort of more generally. Yeah, um, it's funny. I hear I hear all of these themes, and as I am uh, of the persuasion of social psychology, and I, 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 I had never thought of it, but yeah, it's exactly what it is. It's about this ability of a, of a human to influence lives, other people around them. And a self-transcended kind of higher-reaching um, philosophy could guide me to lift more people around me, even if I don't know them. Yeah. It's, I think that's one of the most important things is just that um, you live your life in a way that's prepared to I – mean, everybody is put in some place where there's the possibility that they could extend out toward others. <laughs> With strangers, even. I mean, everybody will find some moment in their lives when that's a possibility. If you've got a kind of self-transcendent attitude, you'll see those as like opportunities, not just um, slightly alarming moments where you're surrounded by people you don't know or something like <laughs> right. that. Right, right. And, and, and um, yeah, and I guess you, this is what one of the things that you, you mentioned was uh, what Aristotle was talking about, about how everybody should be able to reach their fullest level of potential. Yeah. And and we, I guess, used to think that that was the, my potential in me, but this might be more my potential in the we, all of us. Yeah, it's my potential to participate really effectively in the kind of collective pursuit of good on the part of human beings. Hmm. I mean, it's it, good is, I think, not a private project to be pursued off in a corner someplace. Human good is human good. Yeah. <laughs> it sort of, it, it reaches out past the individual in all kinds of tremendously important ways. How, how do we do it? Um, so I'm a dad, uh, our listeners, parents, you know, grandparents, what can we do? What are some steps we could take just in our lives in the next now, a few days, a few minutes, that would help us start to turn to this higher level of thinking and being? Mm, let's see. I mean, obviously, if you're somebody who has religious faith, then um, you, you faith in a personal God, for instance, who you know cares about what goes on with you, or, or, or more than one that cares about what goes on with you, one of the things you can do is pray. Yeah. Um, if you're, for help, I mean, for actual guidance. 
But another thing you can do is to try to yourself and be alive to all of the ways that the good in your life is made possible by people you never met, people you might never meet, people who might have died a long time ago and suffered and struggled a long time ago, to make the kind of life you're enjoying right now possible. And with children, to try to help them understand that they come from somewhere yeah. and that they are the that they've gotten these good things and that they're fully capable not just you know you should be ashamed of yourself you're not showing enough gratitude for the struggles of the people that went before right, you but yeah. that they're fully capable of moving this forward in their lives in all kinds of ways um that sometimes the smallest thing you do for another person can be an enormous thing in that other person's life. And you may never know uh, what you have done for that person, right? I mean, so there's just all kinds of little ways of just being alive to your fellow human beings and trying to um, understand them as seeking some kind of good or trying to avoid something bad, even if they're doing things that look to you pretty questionable. Mm -hmm. um, realize that if you're going to have any understanding of what they're doing, you have to see them as trying to go for something good or avoid something bad. Um, that you're trying to go for something good or avoid something bad. That this is a thing you have in common with your fellow human beings, even if their views about good and bad differ from yours pretty dramatically. Mm. Yeah. Um, and to have a lot of respect for the ways that groups of people try to find to work together on behalf of a shared sense of a good that isn't just for them. It's for human beings more generally. Mm. Does that help? That's beautiful. No, that's beautiful. And great. And, and I mean, great ideas. And I love, I love your wording alive to life. Just be alive yeah. to these ideas. And a lot of this, I guess, is just get your mind engaged in thoughts uh, bigger than you, I mean, past, present, and future. Yeah. And just move around in a way that sort of treats your fellow human beings as worthy. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, there's a there was a Protestant theologian um, uh, called Bonhoeffer who basically was of the view that the most important thing about the community he was trying to build was that every human being he met was a human being for whom Jesus died. Hmm. That's a way of thinking about your fellow human beings. Totally. Super unusual. No, but totally. That's the way that you approach your fellow human beings. You're approaching your fellow human beings in a really powerful way. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, well, Dr. Candace Vogler, we appreciate you. That I, I mean, yeah, you've helped us, I think, transcend our thinking. And um, what? where can we go to find out more about your program and your project um, and, and, well, and just keep up with it? Um, well, we've got a website. The, um, the website is... Uh, edu. We've also got a virtue blog, which is probably one of the most interesting things to check in on. It's called, if you if you uh, search the virtue com, that's us. Okay. Um, and we've got we update that blog a few times a week. Oh, great! Our scholars contribute to it. We contribute to it. 
Um, so just if it, it, it's a possible source of like little food for thoughts moments. Yeah, beautiful. We appreciate you again. Thank you so much, Dr. Candace Vogler, for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. You bet. Everybody, go check out the, the virtue blog, um, dot com. Just Google that. You'll get you'll get to the work. Fascinating stuff, isn't it? Doesn't it make you want to just try harder, to be better? Um, and boy, you know, we can make fun of the selfie idea, but in the end, what it's about is it's about reaching our potential. It's about connecting to different um, parts of our existence and recognizing that everyone around us, uh, they're worthy. They're worthy. They may not even know it, right? But they're worthy because uh, they're just fellow travelers. We'll take a break, folks. Stick with us. Helping you see the good in the world right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. Well, what do you think of that? Honestly, um, is that, I mean... It's hard to argue. Well, yeah, but the people are still jerks and you got to watch out for them. Well, sure, sure, sure. Just take that thought of yours and just keep, you know, basking in it, soaking it in. But in the end, you're the one that will pay for it. If if in the end we've got everyone else in the world to blame for our misery, for how difficult life is, I guess in the end all you've got is someone to blame. But it's not going to take you to a different level. It's not going to help you transcend you. You've, you had to have had that experience where you thought in high school, all you had to do is graduate. Once I graduate, my life's going to be so great. Oh, man. And it changes. Or you finally are going to get that job and you finally get the job and you get in there and it changes. Or once I'm married, that'll be the difference. Yeah, once I'm married, once I have kids, once my kids are out of the house, once I have grandkids, once I retire, Right? Then it'll be different. The problem is, apparently, it's not going to bring you the peace. It might even bring you more loneliness. There is an epidemic of loneliness going on. And according to Dr. Candace Vogler, that, a lot of that loneliness may be coming simply from the fact that we're, we haven't been working on the, uh, the cardinal virtues as we go through life of justice, of temperance, of courage, of wisdom. We've, you know, we instead were working on the tangibles, a house, a yard, a new car, a job, a raise. And in the end, what are we becoming? So uh, think about it. Uh, Take some of her advice. I mean, think about it. A A philosophy professor giving the simple advice that pray. If you believe in a higher being, pray. Pray for help. Pray for guidance. Be alive to all of the ways that you have been benefited in life by people a thousand years ago, by people 500 years ago. Look at how your life has been benefited just by your ancestors, your, your, your grandparents, your great-grandparents. Powerful stuff, folks. Um, we'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we can't do it without you. We're trying to just elevate the game of all of us. Stick with us. We'll take a break. We'll be back for a whole other hour.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your life coach, your guide on this side. We do what we can on the show to give you the tools, the information you need to live a healthier, happier life. Happy chocolate-covered peanuts day. Are you? Do you like chocolate-covered peanuts? They're one of my favorite kind of peanuts. Well, of course. <laughs> we learned last hour that chocolate... Um, Improves your cognitive ability over time. And it may help with the degradation that happens at the end of life in helping you be more, I guess, mentally aware and... So maybe that's the problem is we're not eating enough chocolate. That could be what the research is trying to say, except they said that that's not what they're trying to say. Yeah, but that's what they're saying. They're saying that chocolate has benefits. It also has, you know, it's candy. But Well, and the study way. was done by a chocolatier. So it, just super it was super legitimate. Just, just because it was backed by Hershey's doesn't mean <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't. But, but when, I, when I eat M&M's, I feel smarter. You know, you would think you would feel smarter eating Smarties. Yeah, but, not chocolate. But have you ever had a chocolate Smartie? I have not. In Europe, M and M's are Smarties. That's what they're called. Mm-hmm. Wow, Why aren't they called M and M's? Well, they have M and M's, but they oh. have another brand called Smarties. But it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. What's a, what's a Smartie in Europe? Yeah, what's that? They don't have those. Probably because it's it's probably uh, very low quality candy. Yeah, <laughs> it's just. Powdered dust. Are you saying that a Smarty is low quality? No, low quality would be a Pez. <laughs> that's that's low quality. I love Pez. Or those flavored like Smarty like uh, bracelets. Yeah, that's weird. I that, always thought those are bad because then your hand just gets all gooey. Yeah, you're like nibbling on your <laughs> wrist <laughs> to eat some candy. It's kind of weird. What's your son doing with his wrist? Oh, he's just eating his bracelet. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> that is so weird. Uh, Chocolate covered peanuts day. It's also chili day. Eat some chili. Love chili and quiet day. So I, I'd like you. Uh, uh, it, d- no, you can't do that. You can't just turn off his microphone. Oh, um, I, I thought we were being quieter. Well, we aren't. You will. We'll do it after the show. I would honestly. Can you make an announcement to the team that yes. today's quiet day? Okay, I'll have everyone stay away. Yes, because I'm going to shut my door today. Send out an email. Say you need everyone to be quiet in the bullpen. Yeah, if that's what it's called. Because if I don't get quiet, I'm going to be like this Spanish guy. Did you hear about this? Crazy. Oh. He was fined after his employer discovered that he had been absent from absent from work for six years without notifying anybody. He just didn't go to work. Joaquin Garcia, a 69-year-old engineer at a municipal water company in Spain, was fined more than $30,000 after his employer discovered he hadn't reported for work for six years. And they figured this out after trying to to award him a 20-year service award. Here's an award for your hard work that you haven't done in six years. Well, what's worse is that nobody knew or that they had to find out in a 20-year award ceremony. That's just horrible. But it's a, a bureaucratic system, correct? Oh, sure. The water company? Yeah, yeah. So he just got lost in the shuffle. They thought they believed he was supervised by local authorities, while yeah. the deputy mayor Jorge Blas Fernandez <laughs> he thought that they were, he was being supervised by the, the the larger company. This is a example of why we need smaller government. 
Exactly. We have too many people. We can't keep track of them all. We call this the Phantom Official. Yes. And I'll. Do you want to bet? There's one in every major, you know, company. You you could see division. How this, you could see how this could happen. Oh yeah. There's a job. It's now obsolete, but no one's really figured that out yet. Mm-hmm. And everyone thinks that person reports somewhere else because you keep shifting around. You and know, it seems elite. like the job's getting done. Yeah. Th- this is where, like... Even because it's getting done by another division or something, you know, but th- something this, else. But this would have to be more of, like, a supervisor. Oh, yeah. Right? Because, you know, if this was more about the drain in some... I mean, eventually the oh, drain's yeah. going to get clogged the and someone's going to gonna need to go fix the drain. Yeah. But a supervisor, a manager, but it would you ha- could become he- a phantom. You'd have to be someone that no one reported to. Because if you're a supervisor and you have people that report to you, they'd realize that you're not there after a yeah. while. So you don't, you have to be this really isolated case of Man. no one comes and talks to you ever for any reason. Well, that sounds like the perfect job. Yeah. How do you get that job? <laughs> if, you, if you want to know more about how to get the job that nobody knows if you're there or not, go look up the story from Spain. <laughs> just, just go Google t- Spain and Joaquin Garcia. And, of course, he gets a... Employment Achievement Award, and yeah. that's how they find out that he's slacking. Well, what's crazy is, so where have you been, Joaquin? Oh, I've been working at the other place. Oh, I quit. I quit six years ago. Or I just kept getting my checks. And then they charge him, what, 30 grand? Yeah. That was the the highest amount of a, a fine that they could they could uh, wage against him. But his salary is 41000 Over six years. He's made he's made a lot of money. <laughs> He, he he netted $210,000. That's crazy. Well, it's we're not trying work. to give you ideas. No, but, don't do that. I mean, many people wonder, you know, if I'm a phantom. A lot employee. of people just show up to the office and just slack while they're there mm-hmm. instead of this guy where he just stayed home. Yeah. Some people, I think, could get really good at this. Like, like you know, they, they show up. They're seen. It's called they walk sale. in. The, they walk in the front door and out the back. It's door. called sales, right? Yeah. And then about noon, they walk in the back door through the front door. Hey, Jimmy. Hey, Jerry. Bye. Just I gotta give go. everyone a wave. Do that two, three times a day. Drop you can a, golf the rest. Drop a suit coat over the back of your chair like you're you're in the office. <laughs> there was a guy in New York that died and sat there for about a day and a half. Right. in his cubicle because nobody knew he was dead. <sighs> and then and then afterwards, everyone was really sad about it. Oh, I bet. But no one noticed. <laughs> Feel horrible. She's like, I even gave him a brownie. <laughs> I put a brownie right next to him. He just never seemed hungry. Yeah. So weird. Um, today we'll also be speaking with Dr. Jamie Kurtz about the idea of feeling like you're an imposter, like you're, you know, you're trying to be something you're not. Well, some people operate on the concept of fake it until you make it, right? Well, yeah. But somehow, sometimes people... The faking part kind of messes with them because they're like, no, I'm a fraud. Yeah. Ben, do you, be ben do you feel like that? Like, do you, do you feel like you're faking it till you make it? No, I'm I'm the most legit person here. Wow. Anyway. Who, who's in the hoodie? Yeah. Just saying. Who's in the hoodie? Is that, a, is that a new song? Could be. In the making. Dr. Jamie Kurtz will be joining <laughs> us. Professor of psychology at James Madison University in Virginia, talking to us about imposter syndrome. Stick with us, uh, and we'll talk about that. We'll also be getting to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, find out what's going on in their world. And uh, I don't know. We'll, we're going to let it flow after that. So, Terry, what's going on around the rest of the world we need to be paying attention to? Thanks, Matt. Marco Rubio is getting trounced by Donald Trump in his own home state of Florida, according to a new poll released Thursday from Quinnipiac University. The poll shows frontrunner Trump 
holding a massive 44 to 28% lead over second place Rubio, the junior senator from the Sunshine State. It's hard to see how Senator Rubio can win his party's nomination without winning his home state, says the poll director, uh, underscoring the problem that these numbers pose to Rubio's chances as the anti-Trump candidate. Florida's primary is set for Tuesday, March 15th. So he's way behind in his home state. <sighs> and Rub- and uh, Ted Cruz, he's kind of neck and neck. Is he in they're, Texas? They're pretty close, Trump yeah. and Cruz. I think and Cruz has a lead, but I think Trump's right there. So oh, it, could, yeah. it could change. Apple CEO Tim Cook told ABC News on Wednesday that breaking into an iPhone of San Bernardino shooter, shooter Syed Farouk would be bad for America. The only way to get information, at least currently, the only way we know, would be to write a piece of software that we view as sort of the software equivalent of cancer. We think it's bad news to write. We would never write it. We have never written it. Cancer and the idea that if they write it, it may get leaked and then it spreads everywhere and your phone is not secure anymore because people can break it. Then you've got to do chemo. Chemo radiation for your phone. And that's bad for the phone. Oh, boy. Cook also said that he'd be willing to take the fight to the Supreme Court. Apple has until Friday to respond to a court order demanding they unlock Farouk's phone. In other news, the Obama administration officials met with executives of major technology and entertainment companies in Washington on Wednesday to discuss combating the activities of violent extremists online, according to industry and government officials. The meeting was called by the White House, according to a person with... Uh, who attended, who spoke on the condition of anonymity. The sessions began with government officials admitting their shortcomings in tackling the explosion of activity by terrorist groups online. The event was another step towards coordinating government and private sector efforts on national security. Hmm. After the mass shootings in Paris and San Bernardino last year, the White House and presidential candidates have pushed for Internet firms to clamp down on the use of social media by extremists to recruit new members, organize, and broadcast their demands. And I looked at the list. Yeah. Think of any internet-related company. They were there. All of them. Basically. It's called the Madison Valleywood Project. Madison Avenue. Yeah. The Silicon Valley. And Hollywood. So Madison Valleywood Project. They Government don't need, Why are they getting creativity. cute? We Government don't need creativity with a name. Yeah. Uh, Representative Trent Franks called on Republican lawmakers to sign a letter asking either Senator Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz to drop out of the presidential race in order to defeat Donald Trump. The Arizona Republican sent a letter Wednesday evening that urges one candidate should continue his campaign while the other would be named vice presidential, the vice presidential candidate to that one. So if Cruz drops out, Rubio is the VP or vice versa. Hmm. The laws of mathematics will not be repealed in this election cycle, the letter reads. The mathematics in this equation are clear to the reason mind. The two of you can unite and win together or remain apart and fail. Well, what about Governor Kasich? He's like, hey! He's out. He doesn't have enough support. Oh, that's sad. What and, about the and, little guy? What about Carson? Okay, moving on. Uh, did you notice a change to your Facebook feed, Matt? No. You didn't no, notice I, at all? No. I bet my wife did. Gone are the days of not knowing how to respond to a sad or rage-inducing Facebook post when the only available option was clicking the like button. Yeah. On Wednesday, Facebook debuted five new ways for users of the social media platform to react to posts with the addition, re, additional reaction emojis uh, uh, along with the like button. So you click on the like button and huh. it pops up and you get several options. So you can not – you can whatever. Users now – can have the choice of love, haha, wow, sad, and angry 
emojis. Hmm. Instead of tallying up the number of likes underneath the post, the, the top three emoji responses to the post will be displayed. And can I just suggest before anybody uses the new emojis, please go listen to our last hour and guest about <laughs> transcending yourself. So, so you don't have to always maybe talk. Maybe I won't see obituaries or just horrible, horrible things that have happened that people like. Yeah. Hey, I like that hurricane that have, killed people. Have a different response yeah. to it. Yeah. Now they can have a sad face. So that makes sense. They should have had a dislike button. Yeah. Except they're worried about shaming and things online. Like if you post something of an achievement of you and then people dislike what you did yeah. and you know, that stuff. Mm. It's kind of tough. Aren't we great? That's great. I guess... More tools to communicate. And maybe we'll even be able to get closer together because of it. I doubt it. Uh, Not to be a cynic, but a new device may not improve how we handle the device. Let's take a break, folks. When we come back, Dr. Jamie Kurtz will be joining us. She's going to be talking to us about imposter syndrome. If there are ever days that you feel like you're a fraud... You know, you're not a good enough mom. You're not a great enough dad. You're not paying enough attention at work. You feel like an imposter. We're going to get some insights from a true professional. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, hoping to help you live longer and love stronger. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, have you ever walked into a room and despite all your accomplishments and your skills, immediately you felt like everyone else in the room was smarter, more talented, more experienced than you? Well, you're not alone, friends. Many of us have a tendency to feel like a fraud around others because it's easy to judge others' competence on their outward achievements. Joining us on the phone is Dr. Jamie Kurtz, professor of psychology at James Madison University in in Virginia, and rejoins us today to discuss the imposter syndrome, this uh, feeling of inadequacy and where it comes from. Dr. Jamie Kurtz, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much. It's nice to be back. Great to have you. And uh, just for anybody that's keeping that are keeping notes, you write a blog called Happy Trails on PsychologyToday.com, and uh, this this um, this this concept of imposter syndrome. That's where it came up, and I first saw it. Talk to us about that. What is imposter syndrome? Sure, um, it's a it's a feeling of inadequacy that even despite some really successful achievements, really impressive things that you might have done, you feel like a fake. You feel like you just got lucky. You worry that you might be found out Mm. and revealed to uh, be a fraud of some kind. And it can really really diminish the sense of pride and accomplishment that should be be all of ours when we achieve our goals. I mean, um, Poet Laureate Maya Angelou, I remember her saying that very thing once, that Every time she releases a new book, she she has this terror come over herself that everyone's going to find out she's a fraud. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. People who are, in fact, some of the most high achieving people are the most susceptible to this. Yeah, and what what is it? And it really would, like you said, it would disintegrate my confidence in a way. It would make it so mm-hmm. even if I am achieving something, it's not. It's never going to be perceived as good enough. Mm-hmm. Exactly. 
Where, where, where do we get this from? Where is this coming from? Sure. Um, you know, it's hard to pin it to any one source, but for some of us, you know, we really are perfectionists and we always do think we can do it better. We can do it better. We can do it better. We could have tried harder. We could have put more time into it. So some of it just comes from having really, really high standards for ourselves. Mm-hmm. But, but other people have traced it to things that have happened in our childhood. So, you know, being labeled a certain way, being labeled as the more sensitive child or the less smart child or the athletic child. And those labels kind of stick with you. And even as you start achieving maybe in school or in your career, it's hard to, you know, rid yourself of that identity that's been part of your life Hmm. for years. Well, Um, especially, I guess you picked up that label so young Mm -hmm. that, yeah, as long as you're not, I guess, being perfect in these areas or whatever, Mm -hmm. you're never going to add up. Yeah, and it can come from family messages in a different way, too, if you're always told you're so brilliant, you're so smart, you're, you're just such a genius, and then things get harder as school gets more complicated or work life gets more complicated, and suddenly you have to start working really hard to pull your weight or to do as well as you used to. You can really start to doubt yourself. Hmm. Think, oh, wow, maybe, maybe I'm not so smart after all. Well, I, I can't let anybody know. I have to keep up this illusion. And that can also contribute to feeling like a fraud. It's so interesting because, I mean, I think everybody has felt some version of this. Well, maybe not. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some – I always talk to my kids about the power of – wouldn't you just love to be the guy that just was clueless enough to not know, <laughs> to worry about any of this? But then I think, oh, you'd miss out on so many other cues and nuances. Um But in the end, too, it would make it so you would almost see everybody else in the room like your competitor. Mm-hmm. And then, I, then I'm not going to maybe interact the way I might want to. I might not also be able to learn. Right. You might not learn. You might not respond to criticism or feedback all that well, right? Like, yeah. oh, everyone else has the problem. I don't, I'm fine. So kind of defensiveness. Is, is this, what, how common is this uh, as far as something that – is it something we go in and we get treatment for? Do we go to a therapist to get help? I think if it gets – crippling enough. Yeah, I think that some cognitive behavioral therapy could help people catch themselves when they start to go down that dark road in their mind and give them new ways to interpret situations, new ways to think about it. So, yeah, I do think that if it's, you know, if it's, if it's troubling enough to somebody, it's worth going to seek out help. Mm. How do we um how do we handle it? So, if all of a sudden I, I I feel like I'm a fraud, and yet I want to be confident. Is there how do I go about bridging the gap? Sure, there are a couple things you can do. I mean, in the moment, you, I don't know if you know about all that research on power posing, mm-hmm. where you kind of stand like Wonder Woman. Um, yeah. That's been shown to within you know a couple of minutes just give people a boost of confidence that might be able to help them through you know that moment that they're that they're in that uh, right then and there. Over the long term, I think, I mean, in my own experience, just talking about it with people and knowing that you're not alone is is hugely powerful. Um, I remember a time in graduate school, you know, I had gotten to this very competitive graduate program and my cohort, my classmates were all from Ivy League schools. So mm-hmm. I was from this little tiny state school in Pennsylvania that nobody had heard of. And then, you know, I'm going to school with somebody from Harvard and Yale and 
And plus, graduate school is just really complicated and confusing. Like, what are we supposed to be doing right now? We right. don't really understand. Um, and I felt very fraudulent. I'm like, was there a mistake? How did I get in here? Is there a paperwork problem or something? <laughs> yeah. And one day, one night we were all out at a bar and somebody said, you know, I really feel like I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing right now. And we all said, me too, me too, <laughs> me too. <laughs> and it really <laughs> made me realize that we all feel this way, but when we're in this culture where we feel like we have to be spectacular all the time, it's, it can be really hard to admit it. Yeah, and sometimes I guess just admit, me admitting it makes it so it doesn't have to have a hold on me. Now it's kind of out there. I'm just mm-hmm. being real. Yeah, it's freeing. And then it's others join in and you're like, holy cow, we all think the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the nice upside to that is it's also kind of a bonding experience. Like I felt closer to those people after yeah. we all kind of were letting ourselves be real. Oh, it's powerful. I mean, and, and I mm-hmm. guess let, let's do this. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Jamie Kurtz about uh, this this imposter syndrome, this this idea that we all have. We feel, you know, at certain times where we're not good enough, we're not cut out to do what we're doing. Sometimes we feel like we're a fake, and she's uh, walking us through some tools we can use to uh, to maybe get real and lose the lose the feeling of imposter that you actually do belong, that you are confident and able and capable. Interesting stuff, folks. Learning what we can. We'll take a break. Come back uh, more with Dr. Jamie Kurtz. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody. Dr. Matt here. Today we're talking about imposter syndrome. And uh, on the line with us is Dr. Jamie Kurtz. Um, She is a psychology professor at James Madison University in Virginia and is discussing this imposter syndrome where we just don't feel like we cut it. And we feel like sometimes we're just a fake, we're a fraud. And if these people push on me long enough, I'm going to come apart and they'll see how really weak I am. Uh, Jamie, welcome back again to the show. Thank you. You talk about uh, this concept too of um, pluralistic ignorance. What what yeah. is that? <laughs> um, I think we all experience it from time to time, but it's hard to explain. Um, it's a social psychology concept where people think they're conforming to what everybody else is doing. But nobody actually feels comfortable with what they're doing. So um, a really common example is drinking on college campuses. So there's this norm that binge drinking is sort of the thing to do. And so people conform to that to fit in. But when you actually sit down and talk with each individual person, they all say, well, I don't actually feel that comfortable doing it. I don't even like it that much, but I do it because everyone else is doing it. Hmm. So the end, the end consequence is like everyone is doing this thing that they think everyone else wants, that everyone else likes, but nobody likes it. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> so it's been um, tied to things like hooking up on college campuses, yeah, drinking. Um, I'm currently doing some research on conforming to like happiness norms where we feel like we all need to be so happy all the time because that's 
an aspect of, of life in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and it feels not okay then to not be happy all the time. But anyway, um, I think it also can be something that maintains this, this imposter syndrome. Everyone is faking it. Everyone is putting on this front that, oh, I have it together. I don't have any self-doubt. So we feel very alone. Interesting. But yeah, but the fact is everybody probably, or most people anyway, probably have some questions about their abilities from time to time. Yeah. Well, which is why the antidote would be sharing it. So if if you, if everyone would just open up and be real and honest about what they're experiencing, then everyone would say, yeah, binge drinking is stupid. And we might, (laughs) we might fix things that that it's and wow how interesting is that because you are a fraud um almost morally in your head because you you are doing something you don't believe in doing mm-hmm. so that then might perpetuate the why you're an imposter mm-hmm. hmm. exactly so it takes a couple of really brave vocal people who will put themselves out there and and just say you know I don't like this or this doesn't this isn't who I really am but then that could get you killed, we think. We think that'll really get us ostracized, I guess, because we won't then belong to the, the bigger group. We won't belong to the in-people, except most of the in-people don't want to belong either. <laughs> right. So, yeah, the need to fit in, to be liked, is so powerful. Hmm. How, how do you how, – uh, what are some other ways we could present ourselves in more truthful ways, and, and, you know what I mean, and, and be more aligned to our value system? Hmm. Um, I think, you know, having a sense of humor can be a pretty powerful thing, not in a terribly self-deprecating way, like putting down our successes and making fun of ourselves, but just sort of being light, being casual, um, not taking ourselves too seriously. Yeah, I mean, because I've found sometimes humor can bridge that gap. Mm -hmm. Like, are we all really just sitting around here binge drinking? I mean, it, look at doesn't Jimmy look great as he's upside down in a bathtub? <laughs> right. I, I mean, all yeah, of a sudden, it, it, it might be an easier way to bring it out. Mm-hmm. Right, as opposed to sounding kind of self-righteous, exactly. pious, or judgmental, just kind of making a joke about it can be a nice segue into a, a really meaningful discussion. I guess part of it, too, is we have to know what our strengths are, right? I need to know what my virtues, my strengths, my values, my beliefs really are. Um, and any ideas on how we can go in and, and get a better look at those? Yeah. Um, so, gosh, I mean, in school we get all kinds of evaluations, grades, and, and assessments from our professors that we can look at and, you know, really trying to take it objectively and not just saying, oh, well, I got lucky on that one mm-hmm. or, you know, um, or it was an easy test, just sort of taking credit for it for what it is. In the workplace, also, when you get a positive evaluation, um, that can feel really great. But we can also just sort of chalk it up to, oh, well, I guess I was in the right place at the right time, or my team really did most of the work. Um, so just kind of looking at our successes objectively and owning them. Um, if we have some, if this is really hard, you know, sharing them with somebody that we trust, somebody who's really on our side and positive, like a, a good friend or a partner, and letting us hear their reaction. They Mm. might be able to see it more clearly and without all of the negative judgment that we ourselves might put on top of it. So sharing our successes with with loved ones. Um, And we have 
it's funny because we, we like to be successful. We're competitive in our culture, but we also have this norm of humility where most of us don't like to fuck ourselves up that much. Um, or we couch it in the, in the humble brag, right? We, yeah. we kind of put it, put ourselves down while we're also subtly bragging about it. Yeah. So there might be a time and a place to put humility aside for a minute and just kind of own our accomplishments. Yeah, true. And just, and, just you know, admit it. I mean, you're mm-hmm. good. You're not just yeah. – you don't just have your errors, your weaknesses. You have strengths and admit where you're strong. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You don't have to put it on a T-shirt. You don't have to make right. a bumper sticker out of it. Well, you don't even have to put it on Facebook. That's right. Exactly. You don't even have to put it on social media. Well, uh, Dr. Jamie Kurtz, we appreciate you. This is great insight uh, into this imposter syndrome. And uh, I, I just I, – I can't recommend more getting on Psychology Today – Look up her uh, her blog, Happy Trails. Just great information. Thanks again, Jamie. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You bet. Keep up the great work. Ah, interesting stuff. Um, and it doesn't, you know, it it doesn't necessarily go away. But if you don't share it, if you don't share some of your shame or some of that feeling that you have of being an imposter with others. You have to carry the secret with you. But by sharing it, others in the room are going to be like, oh, I feel the same way. There's, and it releases you from that from that bondage. Hey, uh, we we've put together some um, a great team here at BYU, and you know we we wanted to to focus on a lot of different stories, and sometimes we just don't always have the time to do that. But we have a producer um, that's that's working with us now that's talking and bringing up some really interesting ideas. Her name is Madeline Dresden, not Madeline, not Maddie, Madeline Dresden. And it kind of got into this idea of, you know, names. Why do we name people or or name our baby this name or that name? And uh, so think about it. Think about the most popular baby names in the country right now. New lists come out every year in which names like Sophia, Ava, Liam, and Asher score consistently in the top five. But what about the kids who are given an unpopular name or even a difficult-to-pronounce name? What is it like to never see your name on a souvenir keychain at the store or on a Coke bottle or Coke can? Who better to weigh in on this than our new producer uh, on the Life Lessons segment, Madeline Dresden, who has a lot of experience with brandishing a unique name. Madeline has uh, set out uh, to answer this age-old question, what's in a name? I have a difficult name, Madeline, not Madeline, Madeline, Marilyn, Natalie, or Madison. It's Madeline with three E's. That's the usual long introduction that I give to every new person I meet, especially if we're in a noisy room where the pronunciation of my name is difficult to hear. My name and I have a love-hate relationship, and I think you can probably guess why. But whenever I talk about changing my name to make my life easier, I'm met with intense resistance. But your name is so pretty, my friends say. I mean, so are jellyfish, but that doesn't mean that I have to keep one if it's bothering me. A name isn't just a pretty ribbon that other people get to admire on you. Names shouldn't have to come with an apology or a disclaimer. They shouldn't be a burden. A name should feel like home. But I've never been comfortable with my name, probably because it never sat comfortably with anyone else either. Interesting names are fun. I get that. But I think it's important for name givers to remember that they are not the ones who will be living with the name they're giving. And chances are the child they named might not think that extra vowels or strange spellings are worth all the hassle. 
and they may not feel as cool as they're told their name is. Some researchers are even saying that the harder it is to pronounce a person's name, the less likable they will appear to coworkers. It seems that unwieldy names rarely serve their masters well. But if you must give your child a unique name, then there are a few ways to compromise. First off, let your kids go by a nickname if they want to. I wasn't allowed to truncate my name, which meant that I had to resign myself to clarifying it for the rest of my life. I'll admit it made me a shy kid. Meeting new people wasn't worth the hassle. Not just because it was so much work to keep correcting people, but because they would feel burdened too. No one wants to offend me by messing up my name or by forgetting it entirely. It's an uncomfortable situation for everybody. But sometimes unique names are given for a reason. I said earlier that I have a love-hate relationship with my name. The thing that I do like about it is its significance to my family. Magdalena is a family name. Mine is the French form. I like the significance and the history behind my roots, but I just wish that I felt more like I owned my name and not the other way around. I want to give my kids special names too. I really do. I favor biblical names for boys like Paul or Michael and proper British names like Kate or Emma. Not complicated, easy to pronounce, easy to remember. But I don't want my kids to feel unoriginal. So my compromise is to give them special middle names. Then it can be like a secret uniqueness for them to share, hide, or even go by. It's up to them. I want them to feel like their names are their own either as something to live up to or as something to glorify. After all, what's in a name? If my kids feel, as Romeo and Juliet did, that their problematic names are their enemies, keeping them from relationships that they'd otherwise have, even if the name I gave them was one that I loved, I wouldn't let my ego get in the way of their happiness. For a happy child by any other name would still be as sweet. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're trying to lift our game a bit here, folks. You know, elevate the experience. What better way to do it with a little opera and a little uh, Spencer Linden and Jerem Jordan. Let's shoot it down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Do you like our music choice? Yeah. A little little culture in here. Never heard of it. Yeah. Don't you think? Pick up the game. Mm. I don't know if it's going to get us to the right energy level we need for BYU Sports Nation, but yeah, it's... it's <laughs> Are we bringing you down? <laughs> okay, let, let me get rid it's of it right now. It's a different energy. Can you get rid of... Okay, get rid of it. You know what's interesting? In some like feature film movies that feature like sports, sporting yeah. events, yeah. they will play classical music like that during these really intense sequences, which is kind of a, an interesting backdrop and dynamic. So that I'm actually sure. happens sometimes. See? Typically with an orchestra in there kind of adding, you know, a little... Yeah, drama. Yeah, but I want to I, I want to help you guys be the best you. So if opera doesn't so cut it, I mean we've got there's uh, Terry plays a pan flute like crazy. Pan flute, wow. Ron Burgundy plays jazz flute. <laughs> so does Don Shaline, by the way. Yeah, I ran. I just ran into Sheline. Chariots. Did you, I know? I nice. saw you right outside of my window. Yeah. Hey, by the way, um, when I'm doing my show and you just start taking pictures. Yeah. That was a, no. That was a selfie you took. Yeah, it was for Snapchat. 
Yeah, in fact, you told me that. And I, I put it on Snapchat. Uh, you know what's funny is that I'm not on Snapchat. So I just not, signed not up. Right now. right now, I just signed up. I've, yeah. I've never snapped nor chatted. Look at you. Let alone yeah. Snapchat. No, you, you will. Now, isn't Snapchat the program that uh, all the kids are getting in trouble with? We don't worry about that. Okay. I was just checking. That's I'm kind that's of a, a, that's like saying isn't the internet doesn't have some questionable content? We'll steer away from that content. Are they calling it the internet now? Because I'm used to calling it the interweb. The interwebs. <laughs> just checking. Hey, uh, question for you. Did you guys um, are you guys into uh, McDonald's super sauce special sauce? Like on the Big Mac? Mm-hmm. Yes. How much would you pay for a bottle of McDonald's for a large bottle, like a big, like the big heavy duty bottle? Of the of the wonderful special sauce. I don't know, five bucks. Five bucks. Yeah. Now I'm talking about McDonald's, like Big Mac special sauce. We went to McDonald's for lunch yesterday. You did? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm. I want McDonald's right now. And like Jim Gaffigan said, everyone loves McDonald's. If you don't love McDonald's, you're lying. <laughs> don't you love his little <laughs> bit about when you get to McDonald's, you're like, man, what should I order? Like if you don't know. Yeah. And then you see someone you know, and you're like crazy embarrassed. You're like, oh, my gosh. What are, what are you doing here? I love McDonald's. I'm getting something for my kids. <laughs> That's so sad. Um, $100,000 is what somebody paid for a big bottle of Big Mac sauce. Why? What do you mean, why? It's hard to get. to steal the recipe or something? It's hard, Kind of. It's hard to get over there. But now they've $100, got. $100,000. Yeah, but it's like the big container. Like, this would be, this would be good for a weekend. Do you know how much good you could do with $100,000? I could do a lot of good in my yard. But do you know how much good you could do with $100,000 and Big Mac sauce? Change yeah, the I'd world. I'd like to receive the Big Mac sauce for five bucks and keep the other 900 Yes, please. Or whatever, $99,995. But then you know what you could do? You could then like go get one of – you could eat healthier. You could like get a wheat thin, put some special sauce on it, and it'll taste like a Big Mac. That sounds disgusting. It totally Trisket does. dipped in special sauce. Honey, where are the Triscuits? <laughs> well, there, there are certain sauces that I could put on almost anything. Mm. Uh, Taco Bell. Oh. Sauce, I love it. A1. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Have you like ever had it? Five Guys on a burger. A1 every time. Awesome. Oh, I've never put A1 on a hamburger. It's great. A1 on any meat. Great. But when you eat a steak, you shouldn't have to put um, any sauce on it, though. If it's a really good steak, you yeah. don't have to put any sauce on it. Mm. You know what I'm saying? I totally. <sighs> I'm just thinking about it for a sec. Why Can do we you, always talk about food? I don't know. This? I don't know. Because I know. And, and we're in the in-between breakfast and lunch I know. stage. And we're kind of like, do you guys eat before the show? I always eat a small breakfast during our meeting. Oh, yeah. Like I'll bring just yogurt and like granola bars or whatever. I can, and when I'm listening to your meeting, I can hear you. I can hear you chewing. If you if you weren't on the air, you could have heard us this morning. Yeah, oh, definitely you would have heard Jerem. Were you yelling? Was there a fight? No, I was, he was playing a saxophone. I was playing a saxophone, George Michael style. Hold, were you really? Yeah. You want to hear? And okay, we're just going out for it. Wow. Yeah. Because we watched a YouTube video of a dude that just went around public places with his shirt off and suspenders, yeah, playing that song. It was it's amazing. <laughs> did he play? It? Did it's he so play awesome. it with a real saxophone? Yes, yeah, with, yeah, a, real with saxophone. a real saxophone. And then he he would play it, and then he'd be like, "Sir, you need to leave." And then he'd just go. <laughs> he'd just start over. <laughs> did you play? That is great sax. A lot of people can't play the sax without a sax. That's it's typically hard to do that. Yeah. 
I play the banjo without a banjo. Let's hear it. How does the banjo sound? <laughs> okay, all right. All right. Yep. That sounds just like uh, Ryan Shoop and the Rubber Band. Don't you think? Yeah. Totally. Hey, um, you guys, have you heard of Bronson Kafusi? Mm-hmm. He's at the NFL Combine. That he is. Are he's you guys? Are you, are you? He's combining. He's being walked around like a show pony he's combined. for all the scouts. Can you explain this to me? Do people actually just go watch the three hundred show ponies, um, like compete in their little? Well, they'll talk. To, they'll talk to them. They'll do medical examinations. Oh, they they'll, have interviews. Uh, there's a Wonderlick test, which is like a how smart are you kind of test. Just. Logistics, well, like, like so, so run they, around in their underwear. Do yeah. they just have video though of like them all taking the test in a room and everyone watches and they've got their number on? Well, they, and... s- they have a score and they can see which okay. questions they missed and why. Yeah. But they people... ask them super weird questions. Like Daniel Sorensen told us, that if they, you were a tree, they what kind him, of tree would you be? <laughs> how many different uses can you find for a paperclip? And they wow. have like thirty seconds to yeah. answer. Yeah, see how creative you can be. And then they ask a guy named Marcellus Wiley, like if he serious seriously. Did you wet the bed when you were a kid? No, but I do like, now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> when I was a kid? Is that the preface? What in the, what in the world? <laughs> well, after six, what I does quit. What At what age does it uh, not matter to you? But see, th- th- these are the questions they need to know so they, they don't, you know, hire somebody that then creates a major fiasco and makes the NFL look bad. Mm. It doesn't seem the to be NFL working can historically. Look bad and still dominate. Totally. That's what's crazy, right? I think the NFL it's, does look bad and still dominates. Sometimes. They dominate. They're one of the biggest businesses. And yeah, it's a lot like Donald Trump. That's a good comparison. With Ron better, an idiot. <laughs> with better hair. That's a great. That's a great interpretation. Those words have never been spoken on this air. Like no, he, never, he, even in jest. He, he has <laughs> zero filter. I know. No, I know. He called Mitt Romney one of the dumbest Republican presidential candidates ever. He. Like, what oh. in the world? No, he's fighting with the Pope. Dude. Right? Dude. You, you don't fight with the Pope. Calm Even if down. you're not Catholic, you know that. You're going to get in trouble. Anyway. I would win an election. <laughs> you sounded like a... <laughs> oh, I want to play that song in Donald Trump's face. Okay. I will play the uh, air saxophone on the show today, by the way. Are you going to? Yes. Okay. I, we're, we're going to capture the air saxophone, and I'm going to put make it as a hot button, and I will use it more when we're together. <laughs> do, you, do we need to record it now? Uh, let's, okay, let's get a clear, clean okay. recording. Ready, Ben? Here we go. <laughs> okay, enough. <laughs> enough. Dude, you know what, though? <laughs> You Sweet. tried really hard on that one, Jerem. You know, pushed I like, it. I like cleared my throat. And everything. <laughs> totally, I love it. That'll be great. Next, I would time. win an election in the Vatican. <laughs> <laughs> you totally could. And the Vatican has walls. Um, hey, talk about you're fired. T- Hope you're fired. <laughs> you sound like Jimmy Fallon doing Trump. <laughs> That is so cool. Our hair is amazing. <laughs> that is good. Okay, we're going to use all of these things. Um, ta- talk about your show. It's coming up still, right? You're still doing it. Game day for BYU men's and women's basketball. The ladies going for 16 straight. The men going for five straight. Sweet. Why they might have to win like nine straight to get in the NCAA tournament oh on the men's side. Good luck with that. Yeah, we'll see. Or 10 straight. And, and what Dave Rose said on the show yesterday, mm. it was really telling about 
what he thinks about BYU's chances to get in as an at-large or not. Mm. Quite candid, unprovoked yesterday. We'll, we'll bring back those comments. Blake Fowler. Back. Yeah. Okay. Blake Fowler and, joins us. Gymnast uh, Mackenzie Halliday, wow. who is married wow. to a Utah football player. That's mm. interesting. We'll talk to her as well. Yeah, oh, what my was she thinking? Okay. <laughs> what was she thinking? <laughs> How big of a mistake was that? We'll ask her. How Does she marry have... a Utah football player? Does she regret it? Donald they, Trump did, mentioned her, Utah football. Her wedding reception was awesome, though. They had this one guy. He was like, Matt, why did you do that? Why did Without you his shirt, this? I've I don't heard know. That probably eighty nine times. I know, but that's hour. perfect. I wish I had heard it just in my office. Oh. That would have been. I'm brought. never gonna dance again. Okay, you guys got to go Guilty shave. Feet go, go no clean rhythm. your saxophone. Matt's trying to interrupt you. That means they want to go. Okay, bye. Good bye, luck, Matt. guys. Peace out, yo. <laughs> that's crazy. That's a good sax, though. Seriously, good sax. Uh, it's one of the hardest things to play without an instrument. Is the saxophone, especially for a guy to get up that high. Mm. Hey, he's got um, some pipes. He's that guy's got some pipes. So uh, apparently they're not into spending a hundred grand for the Big Mac sauce. I don't blame them. Um, listen to this: uh, if you are into um, chili and slingshots, this may be the day for you. India police uh, are looking at a new weapon. Police in northern India will soon use slingshots loaded with chili powder and marbles. To tackle unruly protesters in the world's largest democracy. Not content with the water cannon, tear gas, and traditional wooden sticks. Guess what? The police in New Delhi will turn to the slingshots as non-lethal way to control violent crowds. Plus, it's better than firing plastic bullets, which can cause pretty bad injuries. Apparently, a marble <laughs> traveling at 100 miles an hour is not going to hurt anybody. Locally, the locally made slingshots are the latest in a series of unconventional measures adopted by security forces in India, which sees daily protests on a myriad of issues in their country. Just be grateful that you're not, you know, having so many problems in your neck of the woods. Hey, our hero of the day, as we always like to do, we like to wrap up the show with a hero. And our hero today is Daniel uh, Maxidov, a Russian policeman. Listen to this story. A Russian policeman has refused donations from people across Russia who offered to help him save his hand from amputation. The officer received severe frostbite after giving his clothes to people on a snowbound highway in a massive freezing storm. In early January, a massive blizzard stranded dozens of motorists over 16 hours, killing at least two people. Daniel Maxidoff was deployed to help evacuate people from the roads and went the extra mile. He gave his jacket to a young woman whose coat was soaked with snow. Maxidoff then gave his gloves to a boy with freezing hands and his hat to another cold traveler. Without any warm winter gear, Maxidoff was still able to grab the hand of a frozen man in the complete darkness and blinding snow and escort him to an ambulance. He didn't uh, notice the frostbite on his left hand until it was almost too late. At the hospital, he learned that fingers and his, on his hand might have to be amputated. The cop's noble deed didn't go unnoticed, though. People across Russia stormed social media, saying they wanted to donate money for his surgery. The policeman was grateful for the offer, but says that he can't take the money. He said the treatment is free of charge. Swelling and blackness from the hand are gradually fading. I'm getting the help from relatives and colleagues. I probably won't need the surgery, but thanks anyway. Daniel Maxidoff, you are the hero of the day, my friend.